Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. A real taste for blood and a slice to the neck. The star of Whitechapel dazzles at night. His act is murder in from ClassicHorrors.club and I'm Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonstersMovieKid.wordpress.com We are back on the road this week. I just picked up Richard and we are on the way to the drive-in. Richard, I meant to tell you I was just listening to a song. What coincidences we have, you know, with the music that, that we hear on the days we record. But this was called Theater of Blood. It's by Kip Winger and Damian Gray from the album called Get Jack. I've never heard the song before, but a kind of cool song and definitely goes in line with the movies we're seeing today because we've got our Wayback Machine and we are traveling back in time for another one of our visits to the drive-ins of the past. And this year, not going as far back, but it is Labor Day. Well, it's not Labor Day as we're traveling, but when we get there, it's going to be Labor Day, Sunday, September 1st, 1974. How old were you in 1974? In November? Oh, I would have been about 11. And and I guess I would have been, uh, I would have been six. I would have been six years old. I would not have been going to the drive-in in 1974, but... Especially for these movies. Especially for these movies. And this, of course, a lot of cool stuff happened. And we are going to the Moonlight Drive-In. Morgantown Road in Smithfield, Pennsylvania, and they've got an awesome lineup of movies tonight. And we're going to be seeing uh, the first three of a five-film marathon. You know, because I'm already exceeding my bedtime to see three movies after dark. I think you'd be seeing, like, dawn. I think the sun would be <laughs> rising if we stayed for all of them. But we're going to be catching Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Theater of Blood with Vincent Price yes. and Dr. Blood's Coffin. Now, hopefully, they're going to be giving away the prize before the final two movies because tonight, yes, we could win a dead body. Oh, you didn't tell me that. That, uh, that either sweetens the deal or makes it a little more distasteful. I'm not well, sure. As, and, I'm, and I'm looking at the ad here. It says... You may win one of these ghastly prizes, a dead body, a monster hoagie, a head, don't know what that's going to be, and all of this is made possible by some of the local people here in Smithville, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a great theater we're going to be going to, opened in 1948, and sadly, in 2021, the theater no longer exists. It closed sometime in the 1970s, and this could be one of its last screenings. I don't know exactly when it closed, but it uh, it was uh, on its way out. So I, I think we should probably have a pretty good crowd tonight for all the free prizes, but 
could be one of the last shows at this theater. And in 2021, no remnants of the theater exist anymore. If you go to the spot, it's all houses. They've, they've totally leveled the whole area. So we're going to be uh, experiencing something kind of cool tonight, seeing these blood movies. Maybe, you know, maybe we, we if we stayed, we'd be able to see the blood of Dracula's castle and the house that dripped blood, which we covered way back yeah. in one of our early episodes. So it is going to be a bloody good time at the drive-in. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to go out of business because after a night like this, they are going to be raking in the dough. There'd be no reason to go out of business. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think I'm ready for the concession stand mm -hmm. and all the good stuff that we get. A triple feature of Good Hammer and Vincent Price on the same card. Come on, you can't go wrong. It's kind of an eclectic mix based on last month had a pretty... Uh, it had a theme. Last yeah. month's... Uh, the, well, this theme is blood, but... Yeah, we get a variety of definitely. Uh, we get some. Uh, we get some early '70s goodness, but then Doctor Blood's coffin going back to the '60s for that. So, um, gonna be a lot of fun. And uh, you know, the rain as we're getting ready to fire up the machine and go through the past. I hope we don't take the rain with us, but you never know. Yeah, we lucked out last month. The rain stopped. So yeah, we got there and it was raining. It, wow, this is we have the worst luck. We do have but, the worst but luck, but we also have the best luck because when we get there, it stopped. You know, even though the footage we took last time was still a little rainy, it cleared up. It was beautiful that night. Windows down, cool breeze coming in. Absolutely, speaker yes. hanging on that side window, oh, man. Awesome, mm. awesome, good time. Love it. All uh, right. Yep. Well, uh, well I want to hear drive. some more tunes. Yeah, let's. We're about to get on the highway, so we better pay attention. And uh, we'll see you all once we get inside. Bye. And a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. Did you fail to dress up for tonight's show? No tie, an old shirt and slacks, a house dress? <laughs> well, don't give it a thought. We're glad you came as you are. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. Don't forget to visit our refreshment center during the intermission or any time. You love the tasty array of snacks we have to offer. So will the youngsters. Everything is quality and mm -hmm, so good. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. Bring the family. Bring your friends. There are always wonderful new pictures to see. Delightful snacks to nibble. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Don't drive over 10 miles an hour in the theater area for your safety's sake. And mom or pop... Go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time. Come back soon. In a beautiful desert canyon not too far away, a strange and wonderful thing happened. But then strange and wonderful things always happen in Snack Canyon. Gosh, it sure is hot. Penguins in Snack Canyon? Uh-oh, there goes the car. This is a job for Clark Crow. Here goes. Uh, no fear. The power is here. Gather up. Now let's have some refreshments. All 
take an ice cold Coca Cola. I'd like a cab. Sprite, please. Baby popcorn and candy. There. Is everybody happy? Mm -hmm. Way to go, kid. Thanks, Mr. Crow. You really saved our day. Join me at the snack bar for your favorite refreshments. Show starts in three. In this secret laboratory deep down in the bowels of the earth, this man carries out his fiendish research. Dr. Blood, murderer, who experiments with the hearts of his victims. Dr. Blood, the evil genius who robs the graves of their dead in the name of science. I'd like you to analyze whatever's in that needle, Doctor. It could tell us what happened to George Beale. Looks as though he's, though he's been kidnapped. Of course, that could explain the other disappearances. What on earth is this? It's a, a container for a, a narrow poison made by the natives of South America. Oh, curare. Starring Karen Moore as Dr. Blood, who searches for the secret of reincarnation. You can't let a man die so that you can discover something. It doesn't matter how important it is. That is murder. Well, everywhere men are dying. Great men, philosophers, artists, scientists. But if they could live on, look how they could contribute to the advancement of man. Trogay is going to help me prove that I can give life where there was death. Hazel Court as Linda, who watches a man become a monster before her frightened eyes. I think we ought to go back. No, you're going to stay here, locked away with me forever. Peter, you scare me. I'm serious. You must remain within these dank walls for all eternity. Ian Hunter is the father who unknowingly helps to destroy his own son. Did you find out what was in that needle? Strychnos toxifera. Dr. Blood's Coffin, the gripping drama of a man who calls on the power of the devil to satisfy his insatiable lust for the secrets of life and death. Yes, I've done it. But I wanted to create something worthwhile. You haven't brought Steve Parker back to life. This is something from hell. Dr. Blood's Coffin was released in the UK in January of 1961. However, it had its big United States premiere on May 15th, 1962 in Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> Bismarck, North Dakota. You know, that's actually very fitting, I think, for this movie. Bismarck as being the, the, the world or the U.S. premiere. Wow. It was produced by Carolan Productions Limited and was released by United Artists. The writer was Jerry Duran, who I mentioned last time is a pseudonym for Nathan Duran. I'm sure we'll talk about him. And it was directed by Sidney J. Fury. I'm sure we're going to talk about him as well. What did you think? This is my first time viewing of this one. And visually, the movie looked really good. You had a lot of cool... Uh, location shots in, in uh, Cornwall, the town of Zenner, interesting name for a town. It served as the location of, uh, I think, Port Karen, I think was the name of, of uh, in the movie. The tin mine, or the, the cave, as we saw, it was actually a tin mine near St. Just, 
depending on who you you listen to, there's been some sources that said that all the the scenes in the mine were actually filmed on sets. But Hazel Court said uh, in an interview that it was definitely filmed in the mines and it was very, very cold and very damp. And I don't know. I mean, I, to me, it looked like maybe some of the scenes were in the caves. I don't know about like the main laboratory to me looked more like a set. So maybe, maybe a little bit of both depending on, on, you know, how far they went back into the caves. That'd be kind of weird for them, I think, to set up that big of a thing inside a cave when they could do it much easier and I guess much safer on a set. But uh, visually, the movie looked good. Um, You've got a, a good cast Man, the script is just a little slow. And a little. I'll just start off with this. So Bill Warren, the author of that 1950s sci-fi book that I've used in the past, apparently he did a review on this movie um, at some point, not for that book because it wouldn't fit into that theme, but he did it for a magazine, I believe. And he said that the plot was, quote, not only preposterous, but hackneyed. You know, you're dealing with, with, you know, essentially a zombie-like form. But the whole idea of trying to, you know, revive and, and the whole process, it just, it was stretching, you know, the believability. It, I don't know. It just seemed to me to just be really kind of a weird, a weird way and, and a very long journey to get to what was a cool climax, I liked the the whole climax in that cave, but you had to wait through about 45 or 85 minutes of movie to get to it. Again, it wasn't horrible. It was, it looked good and a good cast. It was just a slow ride to get to that big payoff in the last five, six, seven minutes of the film. I, I was texting you during this because I was really not enjoying it and it did redeem itself at the end. Like we talked about, but as I was making notes and kind of thinking back on it, I, I kind of liked it a little more than I did actually watching it. Thinking about it, I enjoyed it more. I don't know how it's any more preposterous than any number of horror movies. I read it was one of the first two zombie films shot in color. The first one is something called The Dead One from 1961, and I'm not familiar with that. I don't really think of it as a zombie movie. I mean... No, it's not really a zombie movie. I mean, there is like a zombie-like form in it. Uh, you know, there there's some of the things I was reading on it was some people went as far as to say, I guess these are more modern day reviews, saying that this film gives us the first look of the modern day zombie. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, decayed and, and violent rather than the pale, aloof voodoo zombie uh, and it did do it what, you know, roughly the movie was what, you know, released in 61 originally in, in the UK. So it's about seven years before George Romero gave us what was really, you know, the modern interpretation of the zombie. I don't think George was inspired, but it does. I guess there's like maybe, maybe like this. And and I think even to an extent, Plague of the Zombies, the Hammer film, mm-hmm. almost serve as like this weird bridge right between like the voodoo zombies and then what George Romero would would do in in 68 and so I I guess you could give it a little bit of credit for that maybe 
I really liked how the zombie looked with the moss growing on his face. I mean, he, oh, yeah. it, it wasn't great makeup, but that little effect, you don't really see that that much often. And yeah, if you've been buried for a year in the countryside, you probably would have stuff growing on you. That was Walking tough. Dead did something similar a couple of years ago. And obviously, you know, better special effects, but it is something you don't see too often. And it's really kind of cool. And it's yeah, it's exactly what you would expect to see. Yeah. And the countryside, like you said, is beautiful, but my goodness, everything they do takes forever in the country. You know, he doesn't, I get one long walk to the cave to kind of show where it is and get, get your yeah. bearings, but every time. And then uh, the main thing we joked, it was like a travel log exactly. <laughs> or something. Yeah, exactly. And then the, you know, the main characters, Peter and Linda, they go on walks in the countryside and, even when the guy uh, that wakes up in the cave and escapes, he's crawling slowly, many, many scenes of him inching his way across the countryside. It just was really tedious, but beautiful. Looking at some of the other other films that, that Duran did, I think that's his style because he did The Black Castle, which I recall had a slightly quicker pace, but I do recall being that being a slower film, the deadly mantis, which was definitely one of the slower bug movies. I think good, but still slower 200 million miles to earth, which I can't quite necessarily recall all the details about that brain from planet Eris, which I remember enjoying, but I do also remember that being kind of a, a slow methodical build he did lots of, of TV work. So, I mean, that obviously was is a different type of writing. Things are going to be a lot quicker on that. Boy, he cried werewolf. It's been too many years since I've seen that. So I don't know. Maybe that's just his style, especially at this particular time. He was going for a lot of, a lot of fluff, honestly. Yeah. Well, so there's a couple interesting things about that. And I, we've talked about him before, but I did not realize he's an Oscar winner. He was an, he's an art director. And he won an Oscar for How Green Was My Valley in 1942. He was also nominated for The Razor's Edge, 1946. Uh, He began directing in the 50s in Black Castle that you mentioned in 52 was his first movie. I believe, if I remember correctly, he wrote Dr. Blood's Coffin to take place like in California, like in a maybe a gold mining or something. And so these two people that are also credited James Kelly and Peter Miller. They sort of rewrote it to be more English. I don't know how much they actually rewrote, but I'm sure the bones and the main thing came from Nathan Duran. The other thing I don't know about him in in several of his movies, well, here, in fact, he's credited as Jerry Duran. And then in other movies, he's credited as Nathan Hertz. I wonder why he used a different name so frequently. Any thoughts? I don't know. Sometimes you see, yeah, people will, will change. And it's like, sometimes you wonder why, why they, they change their names. And sometimes it's, you know, for, because of the, maybe the nationality of their name, they, they, you know, depending on the times you saw that sometimes in like the thirties and forties, forties, especially. I don't know though, why, why the, the change, um, I mean, actors, I guess I can see, you know, like changing a name from from one country to the next. But uh, I'm not sure. Not sure on the on the writing. While we're talking about behind the scenes, people, what do you know about uh, the director, Sidney J. Fury? 
Um, he's got a pretty eclectic mix of films. We've got The Ipcris File is one of his. Uh, it's a 1960s, I think it's 60s, a spy thriller Michael Caine classic. Uh, and then you've got Lady Sings the Blues, which is kind of in an entirely different category. Then you've got The Entity from the 1980s, which is a, a pseudo classic of sorts, uh, horror genre. Then we've got Iron Eagle, you know, which was a Top Gun wannabe. Definitely at the low end of the spectrum is Superman 4, mm. The Quest for Peace. What a mess of a film. Mm. This is a film that I, I saw, I read the comic book before I saw the movie in the theaters in, in Pittsburgh, Kansas, which was a very bleak six-week period of my life. So it's only fitting that I saw <laughs> Superman 4 there. There's so much hackneyed editing that happened with this movie. Nuclear Man's first appearance is like not even in the finished product, I don't think. And then it's like Nuclear Man comes and then it's like they make reference to the previous encounter, which wasn't really on screen. It's just there's so much wrong with this movie. But he's still acting or still directing. And his current movie has definitely piqued my interest. It's called Finding Hannah. It's a drama, and it features two former Star Trek actresses in it, who I didn't think either one of them were still acting. Salome Jens, who played the female changeling on uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, like the you know latter half of that, that show's run, or maybe two-thirds. Uh, she's 86 now, but she has a, a starring role in this movie. And actress Diana Mulder, who played numerous roles. She was uh, in two classic Star Trek episodes. Uh, the second season episode, Return to Tomorrow, where she played Dr. Anne Mulhall. And then the third season episode, uh, Is There in Truth No Beauty, where she plays the ambassador. Or the not the ambassador, she plays the assistant to the ambassador. Um, she was also in uh, Planet Earth from 1974, which we covered back in January in our Gene Roddenberry, New Genesis, Strange New World <laughs> on Planet Earth uh, program. And then, of course, uh, she played Dr. Uh, Pulaski in the second season of Star Trek The Next Generation. She's 82. I didn't think she was acting anymore, but she is apparently in this movie called Finding Hannah. It's kind of piqued my interest. I'd like to know more about it. So, yeah, he's still active today, cranking out uh, the movies uh, at you know, how old is, is, would he be at this point? Is he got to be pushing nineties? I think he was yeah. 33. Yeah, that's, that's pretty well. Yeah, definitely. Very impressive that he's still directing and definitely, a, like I said, a pretty eclectic mix of movies. And I'll add to that. The Ipcris file, it came out in 65 and he won a BAFTA for that, the, the British Oscar and was nominated at Cannes for the Palme d'Or. He also made a movie in 1964 called the Leather Boys. And that's a, um, they call it a rocker subculture type movie, but it does feature a gay character, a motorcyclist. So it has become kind of a cult queer movie. And also a movie called The Snake Woman from 1961, which was on a double bill with Dr. Blood's Coffin. So I have a sneaking suspicion it was filmed one after the other or possibly at the same time. Because uh, I, for some reason, I think that also takes place in the... Uh, English countryside. Another interesting behind the scenes thing I saw in the credits, the camera operator was Nick Rogue, R-O-E-G, Roeg. And 
I that name was familiar. I know Nicholas Roeg, who is a director. And so I looked up and sure enough, uh, Nicholas Roeg was a, a lowly camera operator back then. And he went on to make uh, Don't Look Now from 1973, which is a great little horror movie. And The Man Who Fell to Earth from 1976. He was also cinematographer on Roger Corman's Mask of the Red Death in 1964. So really interesting career for him. You recently well, watched Man Who Fell to Earth, I think. I was going to say, yeah, that was a uh, it's pretty much a first time viewing for me. I had seen bits and pieces of it previously, but older and wiser eyes giving it a shot. Really interesting movie. I, rarely do I see a movie where I end and want to go back and rewatch scenes right away. But I did with this one. There were certain things I was trying to get a better feel for. I, I watched the director's cut. It apparently fills in some gaps. Uh, there's still some pretty big gaps in the movie, but definitely worth checking out if you haven't. It's currently on Amazon Prime, so uh, it's a good good print of it. So I would uh, definitely recommend giving it a shot. Not always the easiest film to, to find. I know that it was released on Criterion Blu-ray, but I think it's out of print, if I remember correctly. So it's one of those things where, you know, a movie studio got the rights to to release it on Blu-ray, but they had a window of opportunity and now that window of opportunity, I believe, is is gone. I believe it's not available. You'd have to find a copy out there. Uh, and I'm sure there's probably some higher price tags on that. Check it out on Amazon Prime. Well, how about the other side of the camera? Some of the actors, what do you have on them? Well, we have Kieran Moore playing the uh, lead role of Dr. Peter Blood. Uh, he was in uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, a movie that uh, I just revisited for... Uh, First time in many, many years earlier this year during St. Patrick's Day. Also, Day of the Triffids, which takes us back all the way to episode two, February 2017. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the two movies that really kind of stood out. He passed away back in 2007 at the age of 82, so he had a nice long run. You've got Hazel Court playing the role of Nurse Linda Parker. Now, Hazel Court, we've talked about her on the show before, numerous genre films, Curse of Frankenstein in 57 with Peter Cushing, uh, The Man Who Could Cheat Death in 59, which also has uh, Christopher Lee. And then you've got uh, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff. She worked with them in The Raven, 1963. A great, great classic film. A lot of other films. She's almost unrecognizable in this movie. Definitely a different look for her. Uh, I almost had to kind of, almost had to kind of look twice, you know, kind of try to figure out why is she looking so different in this one? And and I don't know if it's this the the different gothic time periods and the look that she had in those films very different. She seemed a lot plainer in this mm-hmm. in this particular role. Yeah, she's kind of known as a one of Hammer's early glamour women, you know. And no offense, she's a lovely woman, but I just didn't get that from this movie. Not for this movie, no, no. So we have Ian Hunter as uh, Peter's father, Doctor Robert Blood. Now, he played uh, Dr. Watson in The Sign of Four, 1932 Sherlock Holmes film, part of the Arthur Wantner series. That was his one and only time playing Watson. There was another actor who played in the other films. He worked alongside uh, Vincent Price and Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff in Tower of London, the 1939 Universal classic. He was also in Dr. Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde, 1941. (laughs) Probably one of my least favorite versions of that movie. I'm not a big fan of the Spencer Tracy yeah, Tracy version. He too lived to a respectable age of 75, died in 1975. 
And then we have uh, Kenneth J. Warren as uh, Sergeant Cook. Quatermass in the Pit, the TV version. He was on the Avengers TV show. He was in The Creeping Flesh with uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. He died at a young age, died in 1973 at the age of 43 of a heart attack. Hmm. Um, and that's that's all I've got for the for the main cast, uh, the top four top four of the cast there. All right, nothing on Gerald Lawson. No, no. Do you have anything on him? I don't, but uh, he played the Undertaker, G.F. Morton, and that was a role that seems made for John Carradine. I not only did he resemble him and sort of look like him, but just the, the role itself would have accommodated John Carradine very well. So I. I was just curious about him. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I could see John Carradine in that role. Yeah. Let's kind of summarize. We talked already about how this is a long, slow, pretty movie, but what are some things you like about it, Rich? You know, visually, an appealing film. I do like the, the location shots. Um, it's always fun to have a film shot on location and not be stuck on on sets or in the studio. The uh, cast you know, you got a good, respectable cast. My expectations for this movie weren't like super high, but were at a level because of the title, Dr. Blood's Coffin. And ultimately, you know, the title, you know, makes it seem like it's going to be a, a a much more grander horror film. And you don't really get that until again, the very end of the film. I enjoyed it. It's, it's, probably going to be my my least favorite of the three films simply because it's a bit slow moving but you know i would certainly recommend that that somebody check it out uh it's easy to find you can find it on amazon prime for free good print available there uh it's on shout factory blu-ray for less than twenty dollars if you want to get it on dvd buyer beware there was a lot of bootleg versions of this for a long time be careful of what version you get if you're buying a DVD. I'd go with a Blu-ray for less than 20 unless you absolutely have to. You know, if you've already got Amazon Prime, then it's right there. It's for free. I think that there's also, you can probably find this on YouTube. But again, I'd, I'd uh, be careful of what print you're watching. The Amazon Prime print is is really good. That would be where I would recommend you go if you've got Amazon Prime. Yep, that's how I watched it. It was a beautiful print. I think one of my biggest problems is... Uh, and I'll just start like the title, Dr. Blood's Coffin. Yeah, uh, that is a cool title. But our character is Dr. Blood, which is not a spoiler, but the movie starts out as if that would be a spoiler. It's as if we don't know the identity of this yeah. person. Uh, there's a, a scene before uh, the credits that I really liked where this doctor with a big surgical mask on is you know, performing an experiment and his uh, mentor, his colleague comes in and says, get out of here. You're not supposed to be doing that. You can't really see what he looks like. Uh, early scenes of him trudging around the cave, doing his experiments are shown only from the waist down. So they at least portray it like, oh, this is going to be a mystery. We don't know who this person is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and therefore, when the man arrives to town and we learn he's Dr. Blood, it's kind of th that surprise is ruined. And I don't know if that was meant to be a, a mystery or not. However, I like the sort of metaphorical name, Dr. Blood's Coffin, because these caves where he does experiments, he grew up in those caves playing. And I, I, I'm not sure he references it, but I definitely got that, like these caves, that is his coffin. That's Dr. Blood's Coffin. So that's kind of 
I kind of like that it, reference. Yeah. The movie was lacking red herrings, right? I mean, they kind of yeah. set up this, this, you know, well, who is, you know, the, the man behind this really. And then it, you know, it becomes pretty obvious who it is. If there would have been some red herrings, it might've thrown you off a little bit, but then, you know, it's kind of like it's once it's really revealed, it seems a little lackluster. Cause like, well, that's exactly kind of who we thought it was. I don't know if that was something that wasn't in the original story treatment by Joran or if it was, and it was redone by, by Kelly and Miller, you know, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to know if, if Kelly and, and Miller maybe took that idea and, and, and changed it around, or maybe nobody thought of that. Maybe it was just like, here's the story and we're presenting it. I'd be curious. curious yeah, I'd to love know. to read a first draft of Duran's screenplay just to compare. Yeah, I'd be curious to see where they went, you know, what was the original idea and and what was changed or if anything was changed. Yeah. I really liked how Peter Blood participated in the investigation just so that he could thwart the investigation. So for example, when they found a hypodermic that was evident, he picked it up to look at it and I'm like, no, the fingerprints. And, you know, that was very purposeful. And he also later takes them through the caves and is able to orchestrate it. So he avoids the area where his lab is. I liked that part of it. That was pretty clever. It's not original and, but it's, it's treated okay here. It's that whole God complex, you know, of him wanting to bring someone back to life. And when Linda finds out, which is, it's past the halfway point, maybe a third, there's a good deal of plot that happens after she learns that he's the one doing these experiments. So there's ethical arguments, you know, about what's right or wrong. And she says, you can't murder somebody to discover something. God alone decides, and he says, no, I too can create life. So there's a lot of that going back and forth. And, you know, ultimately, spoiler, he brings her dead husband, who's been dead for a year, back to life. And I have questions about that because did he somehow do that as a way to try to impress her or switch her to his side? Because did he think if he brought the husband back, she would like, oh, you're right. This is a m- miraculous achievement. Thank you. I don't know if there's that subtext or not. It's bizarre. I, I, you know, Carla pointed out that, you know, is this, it seems she's like, that's just wrong. You know, it's <laughs> like, is there a relationship between, the, you know, the nurse and, and the doctor? But then, oh, hey, by the way, you know, here's your dead husband. And I brought him back to life. Is it like a gift to the nurse or is it like, trying to prove, you know, as you said, you know, hey, you know, this this will work. But then how would that affect the relationship with her? Did he even care? Did he have one on his end or was it all on hers? Yeah, kind of just a really bizarre thing to do. And yeah, a little disturbing. It's like, Linda, I love you. And by the way, here's your dead husband. I've revived. It's, it's an odd choice. Yeah, odd way that things kind of panned out. Yeah, he's clearly insane, you know, regardless. I don't know that there's any purpose I mean, there could be, but uh, one of the things she finally says, you know, to kind of sum up her feelings towards him is, I could forgive you if you were insane, but you're not, you're evil. And that's about right, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. One scene I want to talk about that I really liked, it's not a particularly gory movie. Uh, There's some blood, but uh, a particular surgery scene is shot with the tilted camera and, and the sort of action is obscured. But in the foreground is this beaker and uh, Peter pulls out a scalpel 
He does some cutting. We don't see what it is, but he drops the scalpel into the beaker and the water turns red from the blood. I thought that was a very effective, subtle. Yeah, that was a good type, shot. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of good about this. It I, yeah. It's not, like I said, it's not a bad film. It's just, if you go in with low expectations, then I think you'll enjoy, enjoy it. And it's not going to be, it's not a five-star classic. It's not a, a horrible movie either. It's just, just be prepared. It's going to be a journey to get to that final act. It'll redeem itself a little bit in that final act. But at least the good news is, is that you get some great visuals on your journey to get from the beginning to the end. It's, it's, you're dealing with, you're not stuck in some dreary set or with low, low budget. It's a, it's, it's a fun journey, a good fun visual journey, if not a bit of a long one to get there. Yep. I agree. Anything else to say about Dr. Blood's coffin? I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I think I covered it. Well, good. I'm glad because I need to go to Snack Canyon. Snack Canyon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. What can I get for you? Well, you know, I was thinking at this time period when I was a kid going to movies, I, I always used to love sugar babies. So why not some sugar babies, some Coke, have a diabetic coma and, and we can settle in for the second movie. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I, I, I got to get my usual popcorn and Dr. Pepper. Uh, but, you know, we're here for three movies. Maybe I'll get my more dessert type snack, you know, after the second movie. I'm off to Snack Canyon. Be back in a minute. Jim Rex? What's Jim Rex? Would you believe a movie audience guide presented as a public service by this theater's management to help you select your motion picture entertainment? Well, that's what it is. And we urge you to learn these rating symbols and use them as a guide for you and your family. G means suggested for general audiences, all ages. M, suggested for mature audiences, parental discretion advised. R, restricted, persons under 16 not admitted unless accompanied by parent or adult guardian. X, persons under 18 will not be admitted. This seal in advertising indicates that the film was approved under the motion picture code of self-regulation. He who is buried here shall henceforth have no name, shall cease to exist in the minds of man as she has ceased to exist in life. For thousands upon thousands of years she lay there, perfectly preserved in all her beauty, in all her evil. the centuries to another time, to another place, she is back amongst the living to claim all that is hers. You're going to kill me? No, 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 no! To threaten those who woke her from her eternal sleep. A 
rebirth for Terra. Complete control. Over life, over death. Who are you? It was her, as large as life, standing over there. No, it happened. You have to help me. You know its power. I have no mind left, no will. In the name of Terra, she is back. To destroy those who helped to raise her evil flesh and blood from the mummy's tomb. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, 1971. It was released in October 14th of 71 in the UK, and then a few months later in the United States on May 17th, 1972. I do want to know, we haven't commented that all three of our movies today are British movies, so for whatever that's worth. The studio was EMI Films and Hammer Films, released by American International in the United States, It was written by Christopher Wicking based on the novel by Bram Stoker, Jewel of the Seven Stars, and it was directed mostly by Seth Holt, and I am certain we'll talk about that. How did you like Blood from the Mummy's Tomb? This was, I believe, only the second time I've seen this movie, and I saw this for the first time several years ago when I I got the Blu-ray or the DVD. And I haven't seen it since. It's one of those films where it really technically doesn't have a mummy in it, right? I mean, in the in the traditional sense. And so it's it's a little misleading. Blood for the mummies too. Hammer's mummy film series are, are is, is so different when you look at like the Frankenstein film series or the, or the Dracula film series. You've got The Mummy, the first film, is such an amazing film. I love that movie. The music in that movie is so great. And then you have three more Mummy movies, and they're just kind of all across the board, right? We have, what was the second one? Was it Curse of the Mummy's Tomb? And then we had The Mummy Shroud. And then this one uh, is the fourth and final film. Of course, there's no connectivity between any of the films, and this movie, you know, was probably a bit disappointing for people in 72. It was like, well, where's the mummy? You did have the lovely Valerie Leone to look at. I, say, which, I don't think people were too worried about no mummy because. Exactly. So that does that did salvage the film. A lot of underboob in this movie. A tremendous amount of underboob from Valerie Leone. Now, there, there very specifically is reason for that. She was one of the few hammer goddesses of this time period who refused to do nude scenes. The one nude scene we have in this movie is a body double because we only see her from behind. She said she wasn't a prude, but she felt like suggestion was more erotic than showing everything. And I got to say, the fact that you don't see her in this movie probably drives a lot of people crazy because she's very attractive. That was just a, a personal choice for her. And it did cost her a tremendous amount of work. And I believe this is her one and only Hammer film, if I'm correct. I did she do any other Hammer films? I don't have any. She she had made a name for herself by this point by appearing in a lot of the Carry On film series, but I didn't have her down for any other Hammer films unless I missed it. You still have the very lovely Valerie Leone, though, um, in this movie. And it's really, it is, it's not a traditional mummy film. It's, it's more like an Egyptian 
uh, how do you describe it? Once you set aside that there's not going to be a shambling mummy, there's a lot to like about this movie. As I was watching it, I remembered absolutely nothing about my first viewing. This is a movie that I want to go back and, and, and revisit sometime in, in, the, in the future, because this is a movie that I, I thought there's a lot here. You know, there's a few flaws along the way. There's a lot to a lot to enjoy about this movie. And I know this movie doesn't get a lot of doesn't get a lot of love from Hammer fans. And I think it's because it's a mummy movie, but there's no mummy. And I think that maybe with a different title, maybe with the title of Jewel of the Seven Stars, the movie might be more appreciated now. Now, at the time, 1972, that would have been death at the box office, right? They obviously threw blood from the mummy's tomb as a box office draw. Nowadays, I think we should, we should, it would probably be much better to go with a, with the, either the title of the original Bram Stoker story or something that would fit the, the movie better than, than blood from the mummy's tomb. Do you know how faithful it is to the book? I don't know. I know that, you know, it was done uh, one other time, uh, 1980s, The Awakening is also based on this. That's the Charlton Heston film. Right. And I saw that movie so many years ago. I remember when I originally saw that being disappointed because there wasn't a mummy in it because I thought it was a mummy movie. And I remember my dad telling me, because he had seen it, he says, there's not a mummy in it. I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to watch it. And I remember being bored with it. That is something that most of the reviews that I, I have since read about it, it is just a very slow slogging movie and not one of Charlton Heston's best. All that said, I do want to watch it. I, I, I do want to kind of see it now to kind of compare and contrast, but I don't know how faithful either of them are, are to the original story. And while I, and I don't have anything in my personal library from Bram Stoker other than Dracula, I would assume this is relatively, well, it's public domain at this point. So it's probably easy to get your hands on if you seek it out and read it and compare. You mentioned the other mummy movies. This movie to me this is probably my third time watching it and i like it more every time i watch it i kind of i look at the mummy movies as sort of representing the evolution that hammer films itself had i mean you mentioned the first mummy in 1959 that was the gothic lush beautiful music sets that was their their movies at that time you move up to curse of the mummy's tomb sort of in the middle keep some of that but yet starts getting yeah. a little modern and then this is a totally modern take on it for better or worse the the one thing that really stood out to me that was disappointing to me was uh, just the sets were so much so cheaper i mean the crypt or the tomb you know where they go to just was so lackluster compared to like it it just looked like a a set so that like you said yeah but again that's part of the evolution of hammer yeah, by this point in the 70s, we were dealing with the dying days of Hammer, really. I mean, you know, but you were dealing with a lot more erotic and, and nudity being thrown in the films as a way of generating ticket sales, essentially, and, and, and appealing to the audience that was wanting that. And you had overall different quality to the films as, a pair, as compared to those, those earlier ones. Because, I mean, really... What, we're, we're two years away from the end of Hammer proper. I mean, you'd still had a few more random films as the 70s progressed beyond 74. I mean, you had, what, 
to the devil a daughter was 76 and then there wasn't anything else until after that i don't think until the lady vanishes in 79 which is it is hammer technically it's kind of like modern day hammer films it's like yeah there's the hammer name on it but there's really no connection to the original hammer films other than the name thrown on it this was the time period where they, we were on the downhill slide and doesn't mean there was not good movies being made it's just they don't quite hold a candle i don't think to the films from the 50s and 60s those is where you get your, a lot of your classics I tend to to sort of favor these late ones. Those are the ones I was seeing at the drive-in and grew up with. Yeah. More of them uh, growing up than I did the classics. Those I discovered later. But, yeah, there's no doubt there's a difference in quality and sensibility. Well, still fun stuff being made at this time period. You know, there's just, I think you go into it with with a different set of glasses on. It's like... Kind of like Dracula AD 1972. It's not going to compare to to the original Dracula. I don't think it compares to some of the Dracula films in the, the 60s either. But there's a lot to love in that movie in, in, in kind of this, this really kind of quirky way. And I think when you compare it to like the Satanic Rites of Dracula, I think it's a better film than Satanic Rites. But Satanic still has some fun stuff. It's just this other world. The 70s was this decade where horror movies were changing and, and you had things coming right around the corner. You had The Exorcist in 73. You had, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Last House on the Left. Hammer fi- or Horror films were getting ready to, to make a, a, a massive change. And this was this weird in-between time. It was like post-Night of the Living Dead. Okay, we can ramp up the violence now. We can, we can, you know, throw some nipples at the audience, but we're not quite to the point where we're going to the extreme levels, but we're definitely not in the Gothic, you know, era anymore. We're in this weird nebulous time period. And so you get, you get some movies that are good and some movies that are, are, aren't as good. And I think Blood for the Mummy's Tomb is one that gets, gets some unfair knocks against it. I think, again, I think a lot of people think, well, they compare it to the other mummy movies. And it's like, I think that's a bit unfair. It's, it's the title is a bit of a misnomer. There's more here than people I think give it credit for. Yeah. And not just hammer sensibility changing, but movies in the seventies in general. I mean, you've touched on that, but especially when we talk about theater of blood two years later than this, that movie is just dripping from the seventies. And regardless of the genre, it's a different style. And I've got a lot to say about that when we talk about that. The writer, Christopher Wicking, I was thinking he was somebody else, but he actually he was a resident script editor at Hammer. And he wrote several, not just Hammer, but The Oblong Box, Scream and Scream Again, Cry the Banshee, Murders in the Remorgue, Demons of the Mind, and To the Devil of Daughter. So he was a prolific screenwriter in the genre. Did you have anything else about him? Yes, you, you, you missed one of his uh, films, I think, from the early 80s. Lady Chatterley's Lover. <laughs> I was trying to, I guess I haven't seen that. I was trying to stick with the genre, but maybe I did miss it. I don't know. I'll own it. I, I saw, the, I've seen Lady Chatterley's Lover. It was an HBO late night, mom and dad are in bed. I'm twisting the dial to, to get the, yeah. It, it stars uh, Sylvia Crystal, who was very attractive in the early 80s and and. For young Richard, that was exciting. So, um, <laughs> but 
definitely a, a huge difference in, in film from that to where he was going in the, in the late sixties and seventies. And he died at a young age, although, you know, he was uh, very young, I guess, when he was making these movies, because he died in 2008 at the age of 65, hmm. a young age, relatively in the big scheme of things. He died of a heart attack. Best remembered though, for his hammer work. Speaking of dying at an early age, you want to talk about the director, Seth Holt? Yeah, Seth Holt had done some great stuff up to this point. I mean, but there was, I think there was a promise, right, of bigger and better things coming down the road for him. He had done Scream of Fear. He had done The Nanny, which is a a fun Betty Davis hammer flick. He'd done uh, the TV series Danger Man, which is the pseudo- predecessor to the prisoner he uh he died kind of quite suddenly during the uh final days of of directing he directed most of the movie but he died on uh, february 14th 1971 at the age of 47 of heart failure now i guess he was he wasn't the healthiest of, of individuals i guess he was a little heavier set i guess he had there was uh, an interview with valerie leon and she kind of indicated that maybe he either was drinking excessively or, or there was something she just did said he's, he, you know, it wasn't a big shock in her mind because he wasn't living the healthiest of lifestyles, but still it came as a big shock. Sad thing is, is that she commented that she wanted to go to the funeral for, for Seth Holt and Hammer was like, nope, nope, we're kind of, we're continuing production. They did not let her attend the funeral. Because they were on a time schedule and they had already suffered a blow to the schedule by having Seth pass away and they needed to get back on track. And I thought that was something that would never fly in today's world. Yeah, um, That's just incredibly you know, insensitive. But he would be replaced by Michael Carreras, who you know, had, had done Maniac, Curse of uh, the Mummy's Tomb, Prehistoric Women, the Lost Continent. He would do Shatter in 74. He did Moon Zero Two. He wrote Moon Zero Two. He also wrote Creatures of the World for, the World Forgot. He was a producer of a lot of Hammer films, so very prolific in the Hammer film franchises. And Valerie stated that she had had a much better relationship with Seth Holt. She really didn't have one with Michael Carreras. He came in and there wasn't a lot of, of warmth towards the cast, he was like, let's just get this done. It was more like he was fulfilling an obligation to, to wrapping up the film. So she didn't really care too much for the final days of the production of the, of the movie. And she had already suffered kind of a loss at the start of production because the role of uh, Fuchs played by Andrew Keir was originally to be played by Peter Cushing. Mm. Peter Cushing had only done one day of work I don't believe any of that footage exists, but there are stills from his from his uh, scenes, and he worked with Valerie on that, that first day, and then he left to care for his wife. Is either he left to care for his wife, like right before she died, or she died like within a matter of like the next day or days? So it was uh, a very abrupt. He was there and had to leave. And then unfortunately he lost his wife. There was already that at the start of production. And then to deal with another death later on in the production was definitely a lot for the cast and crew to, to go through. And Valerie, especially in the interview that I saw with her, 
you know, commented on on that. It, interesting to, to to visualize then how what Peter Cushing would have done with the role as opposed to how Andrew Keir played it. I think it would have been very, very different. And I wonder if this would have been because Peter Cushing was in it, if that would have maybe expanded the character a little bit, or would it would have this been one of the films where Peter Cushing just had almost like a supporting role and would have been used for name value, you know, the Peter Cushing film, but he's actually not, you know, really, really the main star of the film. And Valerie Leone was the main star, but Peter Cushing would have been the headliner. I read conflicting stories about Seth Holt's death. I mean, I heard collapsed on the set. Somebody caught him before he fell. Uh, Definitely alcohol related. But then another report said he died at home of a heart attack. So not real sure what happened. Michael Carreras, he he was Hammer. I mean, he's the son of James Carreras. I mean, he wasn't even, I don't believe, listed as a producer. He was like an executive, I guess. So he stepped in to, to film. I... I have always sort of blamed him for the route that Hammer took and for its ultimate failure. If you look at those movies, you mentioned that he directed himself, not some of Hammer's best. I mean, prehistoric women, Lost Continent. You I've know. seen Lost Continent and there's 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 something there about that movie, but it is definitely not a classic. I've not seen prehistoric women. I have not seen Shatter. I have also not seen Moon Zero Two or Creatures of the World Forgot. There's 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 still gaps in my hammer of films. And it's almost like I hold off watching those films because there's I don't want to get to that day when I've seen like all the hammer films. It's it's weird. I was like, yeah. no, I'm gonna wait because I don't want to reach that day. But what's really weird is there's one scene in Blood from the Mummy's Tomb that stands out that is just excellent. And I've always assumed, oh, Seth Holt directed that because Michael Carreras was a hack at directing, you know. But no, Michael Carreras directed this scene. And you probably know the one I'm talking about at the asylum when uh, the camera is doing all these weird movements and they're moving down the hall and then going into the, the old man's room. Berrigan, I believe, George Kalouris. And the window blowing up. It's just a terrific scene. It's atmosphere and it's scary and it's great. Wasn't Seth Holt? That was Michael Carreras. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. I know that that scene you're talking about. Um, The movie did have a great cast. Familiar faces, but not necessarily like name recognition. So like if you look at the list of actors... Uh, it wouldn't be necessarily, oh, yeah, but then it's like you see these faces, and I recognized some of these faces, and then once I started like looking up the credits and the films that they did, I was like, okay, that's where I would have seen him, or that's where I would have seen him. Andrew Keir, replacing Peter Cushing, as Fuchs, of course, had done Dracula, the Prince of Darkness. He was Doctor Who reference. He was in Dalek's Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. He was in Quatermass in the Pit. Yeah, James Villiers as the character of Corbick. Uh, he was in Repulsion, The Nanny, Asylum. Late 70s, Gene Roddenberry made for television pseudo pilot called Spectre, which we talked about earlier this year. Uh, he was also in uh, For Your Eyes Only, a James Bond reference, the one of uh, first of a few that we're going to do. The character of Dandridge, played by Hugh Burden was in Doctor Who, Spearhead from Space, 1970, with the third Dr. John Pertwee. Did lots of TV work. 
George Coloris's Berrigan had actually done a, a Tarzan film in Hollywood, Tarzan and the Lost Safari with Gordon Scott, a movie called The Woman Eater, uh, which I've seen. It's a kind of a, a weird flick. Uh, he was in television shows as well. Danger Man, Doctor Who, The Keys of Marinus, 1964, with the first Doctor, William Hartnell. He was also in The Skull with Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. He was in Tower of Evil. You had Mark Edwards, who played the character of Todd Browning, and the name was, in fact, a homage to the famous director. Uh, he was also in that movie, Tower of Evil, which I don't know that I've seen that movie, but that name keeps popping up. Yeah, it's if it's the one I'm thinking of, it is it's known as another name, like uh, Horror of Snape Island, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen that. I don't believe. Um, I'd have to go back and look. For some reason, I thought that I, I maybe had seen it, but I don't know. That, that one seems to always kind of pop up in, yeah. in, in weird references. So he was in Terror in the Wax Museum. I believe a made-for-TV movie, if I, I'm thinking of the right movie, and I have seen that one, and it was okay. Rosalie Crutchley played Helen Dickerson. Lots of TV work. Uh, was also in Creatures the World Forgot, and now The Screaming Starts, and also The Keep in the 1980s. Uh, that was kind of an interesting reference. You had Aubrey Morris's Dr. Putnam. Lots of TV work, but also did A Clockwork Orange and The Wicker Man. And another Sherlock Holmes reference, sort of. Uh, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' a Smarter Brother <laughs> mm-hmm. with uh, Gene Wilder. Also an episode of Babylon 5. And then you had Valerie Leone. Now, she played the character of Margaret, the main character of the film, really. She was in a lot of the Carry On film series, uh, which is a British film series that went on for quite a few years. I've never, I think I've seen Carry On Screaming, which is their horror one, but I think that's the only one I've ever seen of that series. She was in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me in a small role, as well as Never Say Never Again. She was in Revenge of the Pink Panther. Now, this is the the crazy thing. She did a movie last year, an animated film called Jeepers Creepers. Now, I feel, immediately I saw that, I'm like, you know, is this part of the Jeepers Creepers franchise? You know, thankfully it's not. That's a troubled franchise, to say the least. This is a film about Marty Feldman. Hmm. Okay, so what do you? So I mean, it was like the connection in my, you know, the song Jeepers Creepers. Where did you get those peepers? And but it's an animated film, and she is the voice of one of the fantasy lovers. Apparently, Marty Feldman in this animated film has fantasy lovers. Hmm. Three of the actresses who play fantasy lovers are Doctor Who stars. There's Sophie Aldred, who played the character of Ace. Camille Kaduri, who played the mother of, oh my gosh, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Billy Piper, uh, her character. Ah. Uh, Anyway, uh, opposite the ninth and 10th Doctors, and then Katie Manning, who played Joe Grant back in the 70s. That had to have been, like, intentional. It's like, I can't think that it would be randomly get these three actresses, especially considering that, like, Katie Manning is not really actively acting these days, and, and Sophie Aldred is not an actress who pops up with regularity. Camille Kaduri maybe a little bit more. She's a little younger, uh, but... Yeah, this movie interests me now. I've got to seek it out. I, it's The curiosity is killing me on this film. 
there's just so much bizarreness about that. Valerie Leone wearing a black wig in this movie, and she hated wearing it. Hmm. They had her wear it so that she would look more Egyptian. She has some like some fond memories about the film, but then there's other things that really kind of stand out where she didn't have a good time. Kind of interesting to hear some of her comments on that. And the movie itself, I mean, it, it was kind of like, it was paired up as a part of a double bill with Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. It depended, some sources said it was almost like, you know, Hammer was just kind of throwing these two movies out there, this double bill that to try to, I guess, capitalize on the female leads. Definitely different films, <laughs> but they are strong female leads, I guess, in, in each of the films. An interesting, interesting pairing, to say the least. Hmm. I thought the details of the story were a little fuzzy, and it's best not to think too hard about them. Like, I wasn't really sure if she was being reincarnated or if she was being possessed. And there's even some thought that she literally was Tara the the mummy so that that was a little confusing but nothing to worry too much about in a movie like this how about that ring was that the biggest ring you've ever seen in your life (laughs) and you know her father gives it to her and she just wears it every day i don't know what she was there was something she was doing in the movie with that ring and i thought that's just ridiculous and it didn't even fit well it was like turning on her finger so yeah it's so big it's just like it's like kind of flipping flopping around yeah it doesn't seem like it would be something that would be very very comfortable or practical to wear yeah and speaking of her hand there is a scene where uh, she turns and she's got a scar on her wrist as if she had tried to cut her wrist not in the plot at all it's just a little detail i kind of i don't know i i I guess i liked it. it it's one of those details that, you know, adds more to the story if you think about it, but doesn't have really a direct connection. And I just wondered if there was anything related to that that maybe didn't make the final movie. There was something about, it's something in the script that seemed to imply that maybe she had had some, some troubles or something. I kind of thought they were going to pick up on that. I was like, well, clearly they showed it. So maybe they were, but they never did. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if it, is that maybe just a scar she has and that was just coincidence? I don't know. Yeah. But it seems like it was something they were going to pick up on and then and then ultimately didn't. Yeah. I got some vibes of the omen in this. Not really anything specific or plot, but just little pieces like even the jackal skull was one of the relics, you know, and the jackal, of course, in the omen. You know, the birth of a baby and, and some of the creative deaths. There was one in particular... That really reminded me of the omen. But even also like the Margaret was born uh, at the same instant that her father discovered the mummy in the tomb. And so her birth was not a coincidence. So that kind of thing kind of had an omen vibe for me. Like there was the birth of a baby was a pivotal plot point. So I don't know if you got that or not. You know, I didn't pick up on it while I was uh, watching the movie, but now that you mentioned it, yeah, there's there's definitely some Omen vibe going on there. And, and I'd be really curious if that was in Bram, you know, Bram Stoker's original short story or if that was something added for the film. But yeah, and this predate the Omen by four years, four or five years. Similarities, absolutely. And then the last thing, I really, really liked the ending. And, you know, we talked several times about how there's not a mummy, but the end sort of evokes a typical mummy 
spoiler alert, Margaret survives, but she's in the hospital and she's wrapped in bandages, her head with just her eyes peeking out. It's an ambiguous sort of kind of twist ending because she's the only one who can tell us who she is. Now I'm thinking of that for the first time that one of my complaints was, is she a reincarnation or possession or whatever? She's the only one that can tell us and, and we don't know. So no, that, no, yeah, I, I thought the same thing. There was something in the eyes that made yes. me think she's not Margaret. She, you know, she's actually the reincarnation again. But yeah, you don't know. It's that ambiguous, ambiguous ending that can be frustrating sometimes. But With that uh, head wrapped in bandages, and then the camera kind of zooms in, and her, you just see her eyes, and they look kind of panicked. So I thought that was really a nice touch. And overall, I like the movie a lot. I did. You know, this is something that. As I watched it, I had no memories really of my first time viewing it. I I really enjoyed this one. And and like I said, with the start here, I think there's more here than gets credit a lot of times because of this movie. There's just a lot of people that don't care for Hammer films in this time period. And they don't care. They said this is the least of the four Mummy movies. And I'm like, yeah, it's almost like I don't want it to be clumped in with the other Mummy movies because it's very different. It's its own film that needs to be kind of on its own and not compared or considered part of a mummy franchise because there really isn't a mummy franchise. They're three very distinctly different films, but at least the first three deal with the mummy. This one is is something different. So I, I, I go back to saying I wish it had a different title because I think then people might look at the movie a little bit different. They wouldn't have the mummy in their mind. And so they, they'd open up their eyes. Definitely something I would recommend that people check out. It's, it's, it's something you should uh, definitely judge for yourself. It's available to rent on Amazon Prime for $3.99. You can get the Blu-ray from Shout Factory for less than $20. Uh, you can also find the used DVD. Uh, I, I was pulling up prices as low as $15. Sometimes those Hammer DVDs go for crazy prices, even though they're you know almost but all the almost all the Hammer films are on Blu-ray now. Almost, I think you're you're down to some more of the obscure titles that haven't been released yet. But easy to find out there, which is a good thing. Not always the case for Hammer movies. Uh, we're in a time period now where it is easy to get your hands on most of the Hammer films. The availability uh, of the movies are out there. I'd recommend this one, and I did enjoy this one. And I, I will say that there's a strong chance this will be my favorite of the three. Ooh, I am surprised based on previous conversations, but I'm not going to say anything else. Yeah. I did watch the Anchor Bay DVD and as my chain of logic goes, chances are there's something on that that's not on the Blu-ray because that's usually a factor that causes me to keep the DVD versus get the Blu-ray I could be wrong. I don't know what that is, but for some reason I thought I had it on Blu-ray, but I don't. I, instead of buying it, I have, I kept the Anchor Bay DVD. I actually have the Anchor Bay DVD as well. And I think it's on YouTube also. It might be. I, when I talk about availability, unless we can't find it anywhere else, I usually don't mention the YouTube because you never know how long that's going to last. I saw what you did was on uh, Sven Gulli last night and didn't catch it. That's a movie I've never seen. It's actually on YouTube and it's actually the Sven Gulli version, but I have to go check it out because it, it, the running time's an hour and 48 minutes. So it's like, did they edit commercials or did they change the speed to get past the sensor thing on YouTube? Mm. <clears throat> I don't know. I'll have to go check it out. Yeah. 
I am dying to go to the bathroom after that uh, big old Dr. Pepper I had. So I'm going to do that. And then I'll, I'll swing by Snack Canyon again. You want anything else? Uh, I'm kind of hungry. I'm going to go for a good old hot dog. When hot dog. I've got plenty of Coke left, but uh, if you can pick me up one of those delicious hot dogs that the the intermission ads always says talk about you know stick that hot dog in the bun uh commercial always gets me i'm hungry earlier when you're talking about labor day food i i thought for sure you're gonna say hot dog or a hamburger but I, i've got a thirst but for a hot dog you know what i cannot wait to do until i come back because this is killing me to know our next movie theater blood is from 1973 Rich, what in the world was going on in 1973? What was going on in 1973? Well, I just happen to have the notes. Go oh, figure. What a coincidence. Inflation in the U.S. was at 6.16%. Uh, this was mostly due to oil issues in the Middle East and a recession in Europe. Isn't that always the case? <laughs> uh, it's interesting. You know, as we go back, some of these things, I'm like, Shocker. Here we are 40, 50 years later, still dealing with the same stuff. The U.S. ends the war with Vietnam after signing the Paris Peace Accords in January. Not one of our shining moments, unfortunately, in the U.S. And what are we doing now in 2021? Well, we're pulling out of Afghanistan. And as we're pulling out of Afghanistan, the Taliban are coming right back in and taking over territory. History repeating itself, it seems like. In 1973, 200, uh, or more than 200, Oglala Lakota Native Americans and members of the American Indian Movement occupied Wounded Knee in South Dakota in protest. It lasted 71 days. Shots were fired between the uh, Native Americans and the uh, FBI agents and various uh, police forces. The group surrendered after 71 days when the U.S. government agreed to investigate injustices towards Native Americans, dating back to 1890 when the U.S. Cavalry massacred 300 unarmed Sioux at Wounded Knee. Mm. Social injustices 40 years ago, again, sadly, we don't learn anything from history. Mm. Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs competed in the Battle of the Sexes tennis match. 29-year-old King easily defeated 55-year-old Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes. And kind of still going on a little bit. Here we are 40 years later. Uh, Skylab was launched. The U.S. president was Richard Nixon. The U.K. prime minister was Edward Heath. Heath? I think Edward Heath. And the Queen of England was Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) A new house cost $32,500. A a pair, this is what it pulled up, folks. A pair of men's paisley slacks cost $23.49. I didn't have paisley slacks, but I do recall having a a lovely pair of plaid. I had had lovely plaid pants in my, I think it was my kindergarten or first grade picture. I'm I'm just such a young, dapper, young young man in those pictures. (laughs) Music of the day. What a mix of music we had in 1973. Number one song of the year, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Dawn. Uh, We also had Bad Bad Leroy Brown by Jim Croce, Crocodile Rock by Elton John, and The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence. Uh, On the other side, we did have some rock classics. 
We had Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, one of the greatest albums of all time. And Rush was in the recording studios for their debut album and recording their song Working Man in 1973 would be released in 1974. Popular TV shows of the day, The Odd Couple, MASH, The Waltons, Columbo, Sanford and Son, and The Bob Newhart Show. Popular movies included American Graffiti, The Sting, Jesus Christ Superstar, Deliverance, and Live and Let Die with Roger Moore. His very first go-around is 007. Popular horror movies, we had The Exorcist, Scream, Blackula Scream. We had a uh, shout-out to, uh, to Mr. Irvin for Frankenstein, The True Story. We mentioned it, Satanic Rites of Dracula, as well as The Wicker Man. That's what was happening in 1973. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Run into the bathroom and Snack Canyon. Be right back.
look who I found at Snack Canyon. Hey, Bill. Hello, Rich. Hello, hello. I ran into Jeff at Snack Canyon when I was getting my milk duds and popcorn and an additional soda. And I was shocked, shocked, I tell you, to meet him in Pennsylvania in a drive-in in Pennsylvania in 1974. I thought I was the only one who was time traveling around this joint. Yeah, well, you know, last month we ran into to, to our good friend Steve, and and now this month we run into you. And uh, you know what? I, I, great minds think alike, right? Absolutely. A fantastic, you know, triple feature of films. Actually, there's five films tonight. We're just nice. Three. Good to see you. Absolutely, I love hanging out with you all. So I'm looking forward to talking about Theater of Blood. Yeah, so we just watched that. Before we get into that, though, let's get up to date with what you've been up to. It's becoming boring. I keep saying how behind I am in all the podcasts, (laughs) but I did recently listen to UFO Target Earth. That's all right. So not a year. You're only about a six. You're only about six months to a year behind. So we will get you caught up. Yes. Yes. So UFO Target Earth. Yes. That's a good episode. Yes, it was. Very good. And I know you said you recorded another episode yesterday. Can you tell yesterday, us Yesterday up? morning, I was up bright and early talking about Atomic Rulers of Earth, which is a combination of a Jap- episodes of a Japanese TV show called Starman. Hmm. So what they did is they sold the American rights to Starman and they kind of cobbled together a couple of episodes of Starman to create Atomic Rulers of Earth. It involves uh, spandex, (laughs) uh, you know, unusual looking aliens, uh, nuclear threat, of course, which is always a popular theme in the Japanese television and movies of the era. So yes, Starman and Atomic Rulers of the Earth will be the Bill Watches Movies episode for July. I'll be releasing that here in a couple of weeks. What year? Did you say what year that came out? Uh, You're calling me on it. I'm going to say... It's in the it's in the late fifties, early sixties. Oh, oh, okay, gosh, yeah, yeah. I've it's, heard it's, the Starman series before, yes. but I've never seen any episodes of it, and I've never heard of this movie, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, always kind of fun discovering something new, especially when it comes to the Japanese sci-fi, you know, giant monster television era. Yes, yeah. Well, the the previous one I did that was similar to this, I did the Mysterians. Yeah, And that's proven to be one of the most popular episodes. So I must have done a pretty good job on that one. So I think I've brought the same unique alcohol-fueled sense of humor to this one that I brought to the Mysterians. I'll also shoot in a message here. Next month, August, is the show's two-year anniversary. Wow. And I'm celebrating it by letting the gentle listeners, as I call them, they get to choose the movie that I'll be talking about. And I'll also be accepting feedback and voicemail messages and MP3s. If anybody wants to talk about the episode or, you know, wish me well, or tell me to go to hell during the intermission as I have each episode, I'm looking forward to it. It's two years. I've made it two years. So I'm looking forward to at least a couple of more years before the giant meteor kills us all. So, yeah. (laughs) So now what, what's what's in the running right now for the movies? Because you've done this poll, haven't you? On, yes. On- right now, the winning movie pretty much, you know, it's I'm pretty I'm going to close voting here, but it's the word, the flesh and the devil. 
which is a post-apocalyptic film. Uh, I want to say Harry Belafonte is the star. I haven't watched it yet. I have to actually, you know, seek it out and watch it, and then I'll start the script. But that seems to be the one uh, that uh, has won the voting. Uh, Anthony Taylor, uh, whom we all know from Monster Rama and Pop Culture Vulture, I think he was the original person to suggest that movie, and everyone just kind of piled on after that. So I think it is going to be the word, the flesh, and the devil. Nice. I've never I saw seen that. that one myself. I, Jeff, you've seen it, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, not too long ago, maybe in the last year. Mm-hmm. It pops up every once in a while in Turner Classics. When is the new podcast coming out? How is that going? Monsters by the Minute is, it's coming along. like this. Uh, it's going to be so different than anything I've ever done. This is like, you know, there's no, it's, it's going to be pretty much storytelling. And I've got, it's going to be nine episodes, about an hour per. And this morning I was working on the biographical segment for makeup artist Jack Pierce. Each episode, I'll be taking you either, I'll be taking you behind the camera for to talk about someone who worked on the movie. You know, everyone from Carl Lemley Jr. to Carl Froon, the director. Uh, I've done Jack Pierce. I'll be doing Karloff. I'll be doing Zita Johan. Uh, David Manners. I just kind of take about a half hour to tell you about each person that was intimately involved with that movie. And it's going to be a deep dive. I take, uh, I believe it's going to be seven minute segments for each episode. I'll tell you a little bit about the uh, mythology and the archaeology. We go fact finding for uh, the mummy. And then I take you, I do kind of like a a serious version of Bill Watch's movies where I take you through the cinema, the actual what's on the screen, and then I take you behind the camera. So it's going to be, you know, if I, I, I say that if people liked Bill Watch's movies, they may not like this one. And if they hated Bill Watch's movies, they might love this one because the two are so diametrically opposed hmm. that I think that it's going to bring something new to the Monster Kid podcast universe that folks aren't doing right now, which is what I do with the first show. So I figure I might as well go two for two and give you all something that you're not asking for. If I'm not wrong, you started out doing similar to that. I mean, you, you, you told the story of the movie, but you also broke for behind the scenes. Yes. I changed the format because there really wasn't a way for me to break the fourth wall, so to speak, and talk to the viewers. It seemed very isolated in those first couple of episodes where, you know, people loved the biographical segments. They loved it. The feedback was really good, but I couldn't find a way to stay, to keep that narrative distance and also talk to the listeners. So I decided to kind of throw in an, what we're going to call an intermission there in, in the middle of the right. show. But you know, if they love the biographical segments of the early Bill Watches movie shows, they're going to be loving Monsters by the Minute because that is the core of the new show is that kind of biographical storytelling of the people who made the movies. It's very similar. You know, one of my mentors and a really good friend is Adam from The Secret History of Hollywood. And his work has been so influential influential on Monsters by the Minute. He's been very gracious in his help and his encouragement. I think folks are going to really like it. My goal, I'm going to say this publicly to kind of make myself move faster, 
I'm going to try to release the entire series. I'm going to let people binge it. I'm going to release all nine episodes at once, I think. And then my goal is for that to be released on Halloween of this year. Oh, excellent. So, so that's aggressive. I'm not even through writing the scripts yet. And so then, you know, I've got three more episodes to go to write the scripts. Then I'll have to record. Then I'll have to pick music cues. Then I'll have to edit. I got my work cut out for me. So uh, I reserve the right to come back and burn this episode if I'm not going to make my deadline. <laughs> well, you do such a high quality. And I I mean, I know we want to talk about the movie, but I, I want to ask you a couple other questions. Sure. Because it is so professional and so well done. And you talk about writing the script. Then when you take the script, is recording just easy? Or do you do you do a lot of changing with the script while you're recording? Uh, I do not. I do not. First draft is last draft when it comes to Bill Watch's movies. Uh, when it comes to Monsters by the Minute, I think I'm definitely going to have to do a lot of rewriting because there's there's certain vocal cues that lead to music cues that may lead to clips being played. So it's a little bit tighter. Bill Watch's movies is very much a uh, laissez-faire, mystery science theater, sarcastic storytelling type of thing. And Monsters by the Minute is going to be nowhere near that, not mm. even close. It's going to be so diametrically opposed that it's going to be an interesting contrast, I think. Well, I can't but, wait. I believe one time that you left feedback for our show, we played a commercial for. Yes. The promo is out there. If you search your favorite podcasting machine for Monsters by the Minute, the promo is there. You know, it'll be about a year old by the time I roll this out, but it gives you a flavor. You, you have music. It's kind of it's kind of an audio book. You know, as Jeff, you and I were talking recently, I don't really consider myself a collector. I don't consider myself a student of film. I don't own a lot of DVDs. It's not my life. I consider myself primarily a novelist, a scriptwriter, a storyteller. And it just so happens that right now, this is where my focus is when it comes to using my creative writing degree that, you know, that I have <laughs> that allows me to work at any Starbucks in the nation. So, yes. I'm very excited. I, it's Thank you. Thank you for asking. So can't wait for Halloween. For well, many reasons. Wait. Yes. <laughs> One other reason. So should we dive in? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let me just get a few uh, technicalities out of the way. Theater of Blood was released April 5th, 1973 in the United States. It actually was a British film, but it didn't come out in the UK until a month later. It was made by Harbor Productions Limited in association with Cineman Productions and released by United Artists written by Anthony Greville Bell, from an idea by Stanley Mann and John Cohn, directed by Douglas Hickok. And this is the part where we ask, what did you think of Theater of Blood? Bill, would you like to start off? Sure. I'll step in the waters here. Theater of Blood. It's, it's been decades since I've seen it. So that's kind of one reason why I zigged when you thought I was going to zag, and I really wanted to pick something that would kind of be outside of my wheelhouse and I haven't seen a lot of. I deliberately did not want to go toward the true B-movie area. I thought, well, this is, you know, it's Vincent Price. It's Diana Rigg. Overall thoughts, it's, it's, a, it's a C plus. It's a C plus hmm. movie. There are things that I love. 
And there are things that I really think just literally just did not work. When it comes to the things that I love, and this is, you know, usually I love my Vincent Price when he's young and it's black and white. We've got House on Haunted Hill. We've got The Tingler. We've got The Last Man on Earth, The Fly, The Return of the Fly. I like my Vincent Price kind of in a certain area. But this one, it was magnificent to kind of see him older, wiser, world-weary, kind of the elder statesman at this time in his career, to be combined with you know someone as talented and as British as Diana Rigg. That's worth the price of admission right there. And I've always had a bit of an interest in Shakespeare. And so when you get to hear Vincent Price with his very distinct voice speak Shakespeare, I mean, that right there is, that's enough to get you into the movie itself, I feel. Having said that, uh, the movie starts off, I felt really well. I thought it was going to be a little bit darker but unfortunately, it kind of devolves into this Fibesian campness that I really felt didn't really serve the movie as well as it could have. It's a conceit that we've seen before, you know, revenge upon, you know, there's Fibes. Uh, the one that came to mind also is one that uh, people may not think about, but it's a movie called Fade to Black with Dennis Christopher, where he actually takes on the personas of different fictional film protagonists from Dracula, you know, to Jimmy Cagney, to, you know, these different characters. So I love the conceit of each film critic being killed in a way commensurate that's based on a Shakespearean play. That part was wonderful. I absolutely loved it. I love the different film critics. But again, it kind of slowly devolves as the movie continues to a little bit more camp. My, my camp meter is set very low. I, I think the movie deserved better. You know, I understand what they were going for. It's the 70s. There's a certain, when it comes to horror, there are certain things that are in vogue at that time. You know, you've got Dracula, AD 1972. You've got these different movies coming out of Britain where it's a little bit more tongue in cheek, or I guess maybe we would even say meta, meta right now. But uh Vincent Price, Diana Rigg, Shakespeare, in. That was the good part. Okay, well, let's pause on that and yes. come back to do. So you you said a lot there that I want to comment on, but Richard. Before I jump in, do you want to maybe just have any overall comments on what Bill said, so I don't dominate the conversation? You know, some of his thoughts are exactly right where I'm thinking of too. You know, he mentioned Fives, the Fivesian feel to this movie. This is my second time viewing it in the last uh, less than two years. Did this for my countdown to Halloween back in 2019 as far as my Vincent Price month. And that had been my first time seeing it in quite a few years. So this was a, a fairly uh, recent revisit for me. And it, and it stood out even more, I think, in this revisit. The feel that it was heavily inspired by Fives, yet not as good. I think as I, when I originally wrote about my review, I called it that it it comes across for me as a bit more mean-spirited and bloodier. I think I called it it's more mean-spirited and bloodier cousin of, of Dr. Fives. It, it lacks some of the the fun. It is great. He mentioned, Bill, you mentioned the, 
the the Shakespearean part of the movie to me is is probably one of the highlights. It's so cool seeing Vincent Price from this era of his career, not the the dashing Vincent Price of the fifties or forties, fifties, and sixties, but an older statesman, as you said, and doing the the Shakespearean moments. It was cool to see that. I, I've seen some some Price performances, like when he does his evening with Edgar Allan Poe. You know, and he gets on that stage and he just is this, he's just takes on this persona. It's fun to see those moments in this, in this movie. And there's just a lot of other parts of it that don't quite, you know, they're not quite as entertaining as I, as I would have hoped. Seeing this again, so close to the last time I saw it, you know, it just, it came across to me a lot more this time. I'm like, I'd rather see Fives than I'd see this one. And, and there's a lot of similarities between the films. I'm really surprised we're going down this path because this is a beloved film that many people, it's their favorite Vincent Price film. And supposedly it was Vincent Price's favorite film. This is to say, I feel exactly the same way. And I'm just surprised because I thought you all were going to be convincing me how wrong I was. First of all, Fives. So Bill, you say your camp meter is low, yet you compare this to Fives. I'm guessing you don't, do you like Dr. Fives? I like the idea of Fives. I, you know, I think it's similar to that where you have a main protagonist who is striking out against unseen or enemies, perceived enemies. In Fives, he was striking out because he blamed them for the death of his wife. In this movie, he's striking out against those that he feel who killed figuratively his acting career and robbed him of the accolades of that career. Fives, I I like it, but I don't love it. I think that I'm going to throw something out here later for discussion. I think that they they really would have been better served going a bit darker because Shakespeare himself, you know, the plays are dark. The tragedies are tragedies. And I think that they had, if they had mined that even deeper and shown Vincent Price's character as being a little bit more unstable, as being a bit darker instead of this campy actor that, you know, slightly foppish. I, I think if they had played it a little bit straighter, and gotten deeper into the plays and gotten deeper into the even the even the the ways that the people die. I think that this would have been a, a much better served film because there's a lot of interesting things, you know, where he planned on dying. He didn't fake his death. You know, he jumped off that you know, spoiler alert, I guess. But, you know, he was rescued. He was rescued by the lowest class of society and they became his new audience as well as his new uh, fellow creators. So there's a lot to unpack in this movie. And I, I, you know, my assumption is, is that, you know, the screenwriter started out with one vision, you know, as a screenwriter myself, as someone who's done that, uh, you start off with a vision, but then the more cooks that get in the kitchen, there's a possibility for that vision to be diluted. And then you start getting producers involved. And then there's the director's vision. And then there's, okay, what was popular 10 minutes ago? Because what should have been and could have been a true tour de force for Vincent Price and his stage beginnings and his own Shakespearean efforts and his experience on the stage, you really could have taken it up a notch. And it, it could have been 10 times better than it is. The, the potential is there just from the idea but to get back around fives, yeah, you know, 
you know, it's 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 a fun movie in the way that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a fun <laughs> movie. You know, it's you know. See, I, don't I, don't think think, I don't think anyone's ever compared Theater of Blood to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. No, I was comparing Fives to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You know, you've got like the crazy vehicles and the Art Deco, and they're all over the place. But you know, it, it's priced in his later years. There's a certain vibe, like you know, Rich, you mentioned, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s Vincent Price is the dashing, handsome, pencil thin mustache acerbic price and then later in his career it's a much different vincent price and i think that his script decisions along with him being an elder statesman of horror by that time really informs a lot of what he did he didn't need to work for the money price was very well off by this time so if something came across his desk that he could just have some damn fun with like vibes or theater of blood then that's probably that was probably or, or is do I get to travel? You know, do I get to go to a city I haven't been to, to before to film it? Is there are there good? You know, he was a well-known gastronomon. So, you know, is there is there a restaurant that I could go to in this city that I've never eaten at before that I could enjoy yeah. a good glass of wine? That, the food you know, and the art yes. aspect. I yes. mean, was very much like Boris Karloff in the latter years. It's like. Yes. You know, do I get to travel? Where do I go? I mean, it, one of his worst movies was, uh, you know, I'm drawing a blank down the name of it, but it's uh, The Island Monster. Boris Karloff made it in, I think, like, 53. It's absolute- Was that his series of Mexico movies that he did? No, those, are, those are better than this oh, one. okay. This, this was a movie where Karloff went to to Spain, I think it was, uh-huh. like a, a kidnapped heist film. And unfortunately, the only copy of it that exists is a dubbed copy. And they got a Boris Karloff wannabe to do the voice of Boris. Oh, no. Just makes it even seem worse. And it's an absolute horrible film. But yet, Boris Karloff, in, in his one of his biographies, he comments, it's like, but the only thing he remembers of that movie is the trip he got to take with his wife to Spain in order to make the movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, surprise was just, yeah. you know, it was like, you think some of the stuff he was doing at this point, it's like, you know, he was doing it for the fun of it. Absolutely. It wasn't a, there was no financial gain involved. It was like, is this going to be fun? I'll do it. It's a hundred percent creativity as opposed to working. You can work for God or mammon. You know, he didn't need to really work for mammon anymore. So he could kind of expose, you know, do his creative things. Cause you know, that when theater of blood came across his desk, he probably signed on that dotted line immediately to be able to recreate some of the most famous Shakespearean roles ever. Yeah. That had to be, factored into his decision so oh absolutely i agree yeah Mm -hmm. so what about shakespeare i don't know i'm pretty ignorant like (laughs) if you are a uh familiar with shakespeare number one i'm curious is how were his readings you know were because i didn't know it it would could play very differently if like he really was giving the performance of a lifetime and he really Mm -hmm. had been robbed versus if he's just a big ham you know and the critics were right and mm-hmm. I didn't I wasn't sure how to take that just because I I couldn't tell a good performance from a bad Shakespeare performance. I think that Price's readings, it's kind of multi-layered where there's Price reading it and then there's 
Ironheart, I believe the, the characters' names are. Lionheart. Uh, Lionheart, thank you. Then there's Lionheart reading them. So I, I think if, if it was pure 100% Vincent Price, I think we get a much different reading. I don't think Lionheart is as good as he thinks he is. Right. There's a certain sense of delusion within that character, uh, a, 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 you know, a certain amount of unintentional overacting. You know, even when he confronts the critics after Ben Stolen, after the award was not awarded to him in the penthouse, the high rise. Yeah. And Vincent Price, I, I would love he could read the phone book. Uh, Lionheart, not so much. When it comes to Shakespeare, I think that is it's so much better listening to Shakespeare than reading Shakespeare. Reading Shakespeare is ridiculously difficult to do. But once you start investigating, listening to audiobooks or watching, you know, even someone as recent as Kenneth Branagh, who was kind of responsible for a Shakespeare resurgence back in the 90s with, you know, Henry V and his movies. So I think that once you see them acted and once you see the hand, the gestures, the inflection of the voice, I mean, Price slash Lionheart had those down pat. So I think you're looking at pretty good readings, but they're... Lionheart readings. So there's a, a degree of drift there when it comes to the seriousness behind them. That's a good distinction. You also talk about how dark or not dark it is. I think you said it's not, you wish it had been darker. Yeah, the tone of the film I would have liked to have seen to be darker. I think they could have pulled back a bit and really investigated Lionheart as a character even more because love Price, love Diana Rigg, Love, it's a good movie, but uh, when you look at the script writing, the, the characters really suffer. You know, and again, this is creativity by committee. Price may have fought tooth and nail, tooth and nail to bring something more to Lionheart, but he may have just been the, that's not the director's vision or that's not the vision for this film. But I think they really could have gone. This was very much a sand a railroad or a sandbox in storytelling. Okay, we go to plot A, then we go to we go to critic B, we go to critic C. It's literally to just kind of line the critics up like dominoes. You hit them and they, you know, we go from one desk to another desk to another desk, from one play to another play to another play. There's not really a lot of room for character growth or even character to be revealed when you've got a schedule to keep. I was going to say that I think it's plenty dark. I mean... Where are my dogs? Where are my babies? Mm -hmm. You don't get much darker than that. I think, yeah. But I think, yeah. uh, Also, I am a horrible, I I can't determine what's camp. You also said it kind of devolves into camp. Now, I am savvy enough to know Abominable Dr. Fives is camp. No doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting. Uh, Penny Dreadful, the horror host, has a new Dark Shadows podcast. Derek mentioned it on Monster Kid Radio, so I gave it a try. And she talked about how people claim dark shadows is camp and she she defends it and says no it is not i mean camp is an, a self-awareness making fun of but you know they were playing it for real there was nothing they weren't in on yeah the they didn't i would also i camp. would also disagree with that assessment oh, really? of dark shadows as well i do not think that it is camp okay. i think i think there it's gothic it's gothic, and I think there's a difference between camp and gothic, yeah. but uh, I would not say it was camp because, as you said, camp recognizes itself. There's a certain tongue-in-cheek, there's a self-awareness with camp that is brought to the 
to the plate. I, I wouldn't say Dark Shadows is camp at all. Batman is camp. I agree. I agree. <laughs> That's why I like the Green Hornet better. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Batman is camp. Green Hornet was not, you know, right. even though it was the same same producer. Right. So I think, yeah, what little I know about Dark Shadows, I would say, no, that's not camp. It looks maybe quaint by today's standards because 40 years later, and that's not the type of television you're going to see. Kind of like watching old Doctor Who and new Doctor Who today. But no, it was, you know, Doctor Who was never intentionally camp, really. Sometimes maybe with certain characters, it was a bit, bit more comical, but it was never intended to be along those lines. I was going to say that. So to me, it was very dark. I didn't find much humorous about it. And then there's the moment, the gymnastics and aeronautics in the uh, fencing match with the trampolines. And the that to me was ridiculous. Yes. But to me, that stood out. It was an exception. I didn't find yes. that tone throughout the rest. That's of the- really where we need to get Fonzie on the skis and the shark tank. <laughs> because. I mean, Lionheart as a character, he's up there, you know, he he can be collecting social security, you know, but yet the amount of gymnastics and sheer athletic ability that this old duffer shows in the segment that you, you know, the fencing segment, I, I was just like, okay, I think you're narrowing in on the camp portions of it where it literally... It's like they've gone beyond the pale. I mean, the movie starts off ridiculously good. The tone is there. It's almost like they start as, as they kept filming, they kept drinking more and more. And like, this sounds good. Let's get him in. Wait, what? Fencing. Yeah. Trampolines. It's like, OK, man. But yeah. Why that, did he not kill? Oh, what was his character's name? Why did he not kill him that? Why is he the one that he chose to spare? I think I think that, uh, you know, my Shakespeare is is sometimes dicey at best, but I think he needed to live for the actual killing. This was kind of like a this to me struck as it was kind of like a shot across the bow. It's like, guess what? You're next and nobody can stop me. And you can go tell the cops you can be under guard, but I will find your weakness, his daughter, and I will kill you. That to me is the Lionheart character pushing the envelope when it comes to how these people are going to die and they're going to know it because each murder is a bit more diabolical than the one previous to it. It's almost like a, in musical terms, it's a crescendo, right? It's a gradual going up of the, uh, the deaths, the type of deaths, the stakes involved. You'll in a filmmaking and in screenwriting, you always have to, increase the stakes for the main character. And that's why I think that that particular character did not die because he cut him to ribbons. I mean, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have taken anything. He was, he was in a a vulnerable character. He was in a position to be killed at that moment, but he had something else in mind later. It also turns out to be his undoing. So maybe it's a pride cometh before a fall, you know, where the, the character combined with, Epes and trampolines, you know, he's he's just kind of like he thinks he's invincible. And as we discover, he is not. Maybe that's part of it, too. Jeff, I want to go back. Uh, you're talking about some of the 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 darkness and then and, and the the campiness of it. And, and 
the the poodle pie, I think, is a perfect example of of a moment where there's obviously there's a darkness to that, right? I mean, the the you know Meredith Meridu is being served his beloved babies in a, mm-hmm. in a pie, and not just served. I mean, he's having you know that funnel shoved down his throat, and it's being crammed. Yet, you know, when he comes in, and, and because it's Robert Morley. It's it's this crazy campy scenario too because he's coming in as like you know oh well thank you I I don't know what I'd say you know as he's being served and then then he starts asking where his babies are and then it's like well then they whip out and there's the two little heads staring at him which is a moment where you kind of laugh it's not like I didn't take it as oh my god yeah. it's a gross moment it's it's a harsh moment but yet again it's not played a hundred percent straight. Uh, and I think it's because also Vincent Price's performance there as the the chef and is just kind of going over the top of his performance. So that's it's a moment where if it was done differently, it could be horrifically dark. But as it was, it mm-hmm. was weird. Yep, that's pretty gross. That's pretty disturbing. Yet you're almost laughing at parts of it because you're like, oh, my God, there's the poodle heads. And then I kind of let out a, this weird chuckle because it's just kind of warped the whole scenario. So I think that's where there's moments where it's, it's camp and dark and mixed in and it doesn't quite know what, and I think where Bill is saying is if it would go, you know, if you would have said, let's just go dark and avoid the camp. Yeah. I think right. then there wouldn't be the fives comparisons, even though no. the scenario is the same. I mean, somebody seeking revenge, mm-hmm. but because it would be playing straight, I think that it would have been potentially a much better movie. It would have been a much better. Absolutely. I mean, the the character study you could have done with, with Edward Lionheart at that point would have been so much more interesting as it was. He was like, there was shades of of something there. Yes. But then it's like camp, 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 you know, and then it's inconsistent. Yes. It's inconsistent. Yeah. You're kind of like, Mm. we're here and then we're here. We're here. And then we're here. Yeah. Yes. And And because Fives was consistent, right? It was consistent camp. Yeah, yeah. They knew they that was a that was a decision that was made. I think for Theater of Blood, I mean, I think back to the first murder. I mean, it's just, you know, he's in that abandoned building. There's, you know, people lying around. It's pretty brutal. And it's almost like just as there is a crescendo in the methods of murder there's almost a crescendo from zero percent camp to you know 100 percent camp you know when you've got the dogs and you've got you know robert morley you know there's that whole undercurrent there that you know they really couldn't come out and say it so he's kind of over the top overall it's an inconsistent movie i don't think there was a unity of vision in what they really wanted to do it's almost it takes on like the judy garland mickey rooney let's go put on a show in the barn type thing where it's like they just kind of get together and hey we got vincent price we got diana rigg i don't know if she was still doing the avengers at this time or or she was you know i don't know what the time frame is here but she's 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 amazing she's amazing and I'm going to piggyback off of mentioning Diana Rigg to what I think is one of the fatal flaws of this film. I think we're going to agree. Yes. It's where they have deliberately see it's supposed to be a secret that his daughter is helping him 
commit these murders. Right. And they take a beautiful woman like Diana Rigg, stick a sad thrift store wig on her <laughs> with some sideburns and a porn stash and some sunglasses. And you think we're not going to pick that up immediately? That was such a misstep in my opinion, because there are, if you want to keep it a secret that the daughter's helping, there are other ways to do it rather than having this mutton Jeff type sidekick who was constantly with Lovejoy, yet for some inexplicable reason, disguised. Because the only person who is going to see this weird character is the person who's getting ready to die. So it's not like there's going to be any witnesses left. You could have had Diana Rigg in there undisguised from the get-go to really bring that home. But yet it's a false kind of ta-da or reveal at the end. And whenever that character was in a scene, it was so jarring and so unrealistic that you're like, oh, there's Diana, there's Diana Rigg in, in drag or whatever the reverse of drag is, male drag or whatever, because she's so thin, she's svelte. You know, there's no man on this planet probably built like that. It takes you out of everything else that is going on around that character. You could have done it and, and just had a sidekick, you know, not, even, not even have Diana Rigg. Because I think if some of the victims, they they would have recognized her and they might, and especially once the murders got started, they might have immediately recognized, wait a minute, I'm in a situation before they actually realized it, you know, in the movie. So she would tip that her presence would have tipped the hand of yeah. what was coming on. So yeah, she agreed. Her, she could have been maybe one of the entourage in the back or something. Mm -hmm. That would have been maybe mm -hmm. the moment of reveal is like she kind of comes forward and, and says something about, you know, what you did to my father or something. And then sure. Price whips off and is like, you know, haha, I'm here. You could have had that reveal moment and maybe you can be creative with it. Mm -hmm. I agree though. I mean, hiding, it wasn't like, I wonder who, you know, who could that be? Who um, could that be? Oh my, I have no idea. Yeah. Very weak. Uh, that's why would you hide Diana Rigg under that? It's like, you've got yes. this beautiful actress who every scene she's in, she shines. Yes. Yeah. Let's put her in that porn stash. She was, she was ridiculously underused in this film. And I forgot how woefully underused she was because she was a draw. She was a draw at the time. You this, know, yeah, she, well, this is like post Avengers time frame and i'm trying to think what she she was doing at this point and in 70s kind of nebulous area before she really reached new heights post avengers and maybe mm -hmm. that's you know she would have still been a draw but absolutely maybe not quite now she's elevated to whole new heights 73 avengers was probably at that point this kind of forgotten tv show that hadn't mm -hmm. quite had its renaissance yet Mm -hmm. And people would, would have remembered her as this former TV actress. So the former, you know, Mrs. Bond who gets killed. Right. At the end of the but she could have also delivered the Shakespearean lines with just as much talent oh, and absolutely. as much depth yeah, as Price. Absolutely. With her stage experience. So that's another dropped ball, I feel, on this film. So the screenplay is written by Anthony Gravel Bell. And when you look at his, his film credits, this is it. I mean, he did six, six things. The other five things are forgettable. This was the most noteworthy thing that he did. And, and so I think that kind of speaks volumes too, as to some of the inadequacies of this film clearly falls on, on the script and mm -hmm. the direction they chose to go with it. I mean, the director, Douglas Hickox 
I had a few other things, but it had been a while. He did The Haunted Strangler, with, with, which is a good Boris Karloff movie. I enjoy that one. The Giant Behemoth, you know, fun, big, giant monster movie. But, you know, again, not necessarily A-list, act, uh, A-list director. You're not dealing with someone who did a lot of screenplays. I mean, six credits is nothing, really, in the big scheme of things. So right. you got some not necessarily A-list talent behind the scenes. You got A-list talent in front. Because you got really an impressive cast, um, and and some of whom who just weren't used enough or or as as well as they should have. And I think it falls on the director, and it falls on this on the screenplay. As a premise, it is an unbelievably good premise. The actors you could not have picked two better leads than Price and Rig, but the execution. You know, the devil is in the details and the execution was just, you know, again, we're going to suffer some slings and arrows for this one. Right. You know, because like you say, this thing has a ridiculously high rating and Rotten Tomatoes. This is, you know, Price's favorite movie. A lot of it is their, you know, favorite Price movie. So I think that uh, all letters can just be sent to Jeff and uh, Rich. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> uh, you're the guest, so I think you have to assume that. Okay, sure. <laughs> my 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 post office box is on my website, so feel free to send me your thoughts. <laughs> I think sometimes with actors, they, their their favorite films aren't always necessarily their best. No, not films. at all. No, may, they, it may have been just because of the Shakespeare factor. Exactly the experience they had making the mm-hmm. movie. You know, mm-hmm. that either. Well, we had a fun time making that. Yes, yes. The fact that maybe Vincent Price getting to work with Diana Rigg. Absolutely. I think that factors in heavily. Absolutely. The fact that he's meeting his soon-to-be wife. That is true. That is correct. The one, yeah. Yep, Coral Brown, who played Mm -hmm. Chloe Moon. Yeah, yeah, they they met and happily Yeah, I think Jeff hit that one on the head. That's why, of course, that's my favorite movie. (laughs) Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. I do want to call out one scene that I really liked, and it's one of, uh, in almost every movie, Vincent Price does one little thing that's like you almost think it's ad-libbed or it's it's just perfect, it's sublime. And that's when they're dressed as surgeons and he's putting the lipstick on the neck and going to cut, cut the head off. Yes, he's asking yes. you know, for the scalpel and all that. There's a moment when he's hunched over the body and he turns and he just, this little glimmer in his eye, like, uh, my brow is sweating. You know, yes, she yes. reaches over and taps it. I just thought that was a brilliant little extra detail. His comedic timing is impeccable. You couldn't ask for a better comedic horror actor than Vincent Price. I think that's that goes undervalued these days. What other points you got about it? Did you deliver all of yours, Bill? I'm going to bring up something for discussion. This can be discussed now, or if you post this on your YouTube channel or your Facebook, perhaps your listeners would like to chime in on this. Okay. So I've done some thinking about this, and this is our topic for discussion now or later. Give you some time to think about it. But I've brought up a couple of points. Like I would like it to be darker. I would like for the emphasis to be on Shakespeare. I would like for the emphasis to be on the modes of death within Shakespeare. If I, Bill Mize, was creating this movie in 2021 and I had carte blanche to cast the lead actor in the remake of Theater of Blood, I would choose Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh. And it would be 
wonderful. <laughs> the Shakespearean element alone. Absolutely. Just price. think of the gravitas that he brings to the role. He's got the comedic chops. He's got a bright sense of humor. He's got tons of Shakespearean experience. He's totally in, in a point now in his career where he could do it. He could. And you leave you leave yeah. the daughter subplot out of it, I think. It's just literally the yeah. mental and the mental anguish of an actor who feels that he has been wronged. Well, and see, he brings he, Yeah, he he's got this this element now where he doesn't take himself as serious. Right. Right. Um because he's talked about that when he joined Star Trek The Next Generation, he was Mr. Serious. And the other yes. cast members, you know, that first season is like, you know, good Lord, Patrick, lighten up. This is a T this is a sci-fi TV mm-hmm. show. And he was, he was approaching it as we're performing Shakespeare for the queen. You know, we should be right. here in this. And you, and you hear him talk now and he just kind of like, he'll, he'll just kind of shake his head. And it's like, you know, he's older and wiser. And, and he just, he would have fun with this. He would, but also he's cashed a lot of really big paychecks. He's discovered the joy of smoking pot. And he's married a woman about 30 years younger than him who is a yoga instructor. So he's got a lot of things to be happy about in life in general. So I think that I this is it. I'm calling it Theater of Blood remake. Patrick Stewart, somebody out there in Hollywood needs to make it happen. I'm calling. I don't think there's discussion there. I, I agree. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Okay, now I'm done. i guess i did have one other thing to um ask about so his the people that discovered him when he washed up on shore and took care of him and by the way that's a terrific dummy that falls usually you know the legs yes the splayed everywhere really nice had a nice Mm -hmm. dive in the Mm -hmm. water i'm like they're drinking this purple liquid and i'm like is that i you know i did i didn't understand i didn't know but and then in the credits they're called the meths I can't even say it. Meths drinkers. Did you all know what that was or what that meant? Like, is it M-E-T-H-S? Yeah. yeah. Meths, yeah. like methamphetamine, the meth well, drinkers? Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I looked I don't this know. up because I, I just first thought, oh, oh, they're drunks or whatever. But then like that, that one crazy woman, she wasn't right that ended up hitting right. Diana Rigg at the end. A meth drinker, and it is a purple liquid, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a person who drinks methylated spirits. Methylated um, spirits is denatured alcohol used for cleaning. Oh my not God. meant to be drink. Nineteen percent alcohol. But after the war, there was a period of time in Great Britain where this was a problem. This was a deviant behavior, and people were really. I I will say actually, I, this is crazy. I have a little story with this. My dad talked about this as being something he experienced, not directly, but experienced in the military. When, when he said when they were, because he was in the Marine Corps, and um, they, they would have some periods where he was, he was you know, on ship, or um, I, I, I've talked about it, I think, in the past on the show. He was on a, a submarine that was um, involved in some of the um, post-World War II atomic bomb testing. Operation Greenhouse. Well, not a submarine. He was on a ship that was being trailed by a, well, they assumed a Russian submarine. 
but he was on ship and they would, you know, they would set off the atomic bombs and he was on ship and he, he was describing in this diary that I've got the different colors of the various different atomic bombs that they were setting off. They had different colors. One would be, was, was green and one had a, had a more reddish hue to it. My dad talked about the guys on the ship and this you know, particular mission, how they would do, they would create that. He didn't call it the, the term methylated, but it was exactly what that was. It was the essentially, you know, one, one step away from rubbing alcohol. And dad said, no, man, I was like, no matter how thirsty I was for a drink, I, there's no way he was touching that because it would make guys crazy. He said that the effect that it would have on these guys in the ship was that, I mean, fights would break out in the mess hall because they would just, they'd get so drunk, they were out of their minds. I mean, it was like they were on drugs, essentially. The damage, though, that it would do internally, Dad mentioned, is that they they were always breaking up stills, basically, on the ship. <laughs> Guys that they were so hungry, so thirsty for, for alcohol that they would, they would, you know, take basically rubbing alcohol and do this crazy process to to make it to where it was serviceable and and could drink. I can't even imagine being that desperate that that's what you're going to do. But it's interesting that that actually was a a purple drink. Yeah. Rich, you got anything else on it? I'll just go light over some of my stuff here because we've been talking about this for a while. You got a great cast in this one. You know, we talked about Vincent Price and Diana Rigg and you've got Ian Hendry played Devlin. He worked on the Avengers before Diana Rigg, actually on that show. He played Dr. David Keel, one of the original characters in the first season of the Avengers. I mean, he was in a lot of movies, familiar, familiar character. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Diana Rigg was in a 2013 episode of Doctor Who, another shameless Doctor Who reference. Uh, Michael uh, Hordern, who played George Maxwell, uh, played Jacob Marley in my all-time favorite version of A Christmas Carol, 1951's. Scrooge opposite uh, Alistair Sim. Of course, Robert Morley, well-known actor there. I should mention Diana Dore. She had a small role in this one as Maisie, getting a bit of a back rub from Edward Lionheart before things turned unfortunate for her. Uh, We've talked about her before on the show. She worked with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in Nothing But the Night from 1973. This is interesting. Her husband was Solomon played by Jack Hawkins, but the voice was actually Charles Gray. The voice was dubbed and Charles Gray provided the voice. He played Ernst Stavro Blofeld, another 007 reference. Uh, He played him in Diamonds Are Forever, 1971, opposite Sean Connery. So great cast, a lot of familiar faces, which enhances the movie. I think if you didn't have the familiar faces, Even the supporting cast, this movie probably wouldn't be as well loved. It would probably lose a notch or two with some people. Price obviously makes it, you know, memorable no matter what. But when you see all these other familiar supporting cast, it really makes it this big ensemble. And even though the movie is not what we want it to be or what it could have been or what some other people think it is, there was still a fun element to this for me. There was... I still enjoyed it. Not as much. It's one of those movies. Sometimes you see a movie three or four times and you appreciate it more. This one is, is kind of the opposite effect. It seems like each time I see this, I'm, I'm picking it apart a little bit more. And, and maybe it's because with fives, for example, 
as I've said, I wasn't a fan of the Fives movies before. And so now I see, you know, that this movie coming right after the Fives movies, it's kind of like Fives did it better because it knew what it wanted to be. This movie didn't quite know for sure what it wanted to be. All that said, it's a movie that I would recommend uh, if people are interested. You certainly Vincent Price aficionados. It's out on Amazon Prime, $3.99 to rent. Blu-ray is going to be a little pricey if you can find it. It was on Twilight Time. That company has gone out of business and that Blu-ray is out of print. Prices are going upwards of $50 now for that Blu-ray and probably will go higher over time until somebody else gets the rights to release it. But for right now, that's the only Blu-ray uh, out. Good luck finding it. It's, it's, it's expensive out there. You can find it on my shelf. That's the one I watched. <laughs> oh, well, when I've seen it before, not on the drive-in screen. I'm assuming that the Twilight Time is, is widescreen. That's a good question. I don't remember. Because my copy is the MGM release, and it's not widescreen. Hmm. It's a it's a standard frame cut, which always kind of surprised me. It's like, I don't know why the that movie was clearly made in widescreen and why the MGM didn't have the rights to the widescreen print. And so I'm, I'm a, I was wondering if the Twilight Time was or not. I don't recall. I thought it was on one of the Vincent Price collections, uh, but I was looking looking at him to see which one it was on and couldn't find it. And then I realized I had the Blu-ray. Yeah. Bill, this has been fun. You have brought some very thought-provoking comments. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll have to have you back, though, because we didn't really argue about anything. You know, we really like love, to argue. I would love to come back. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take up a counter position. I'll, 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 I'll be the steel man argument. That's fine. Sure. This is the first podcast I've appeared on, so I'm not sure if my career is getting ready to take off or is this oh. a one and done. We'll see. Yeah, I don't think I'd put much faith into it, but <laughs> me either. You know, you we'll have you back. <laughs> you know, if your career goes nowhere, we'll have you back. All right. <laughs> we're we're hoping you bring us an influx of audience yeah. members. Oh well, well, let me know how your your download count <laughs> Our goes. Our numbers are we'll... going to go through the roof. Have a safe drive home. Back Thank to you. Your own year. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it was cool. great, great seeing you here in 1974. I love uh, you guys have been such wonderful supporters of my show, and I cannot say thank you enough to you and any listeners that you've brought my way. I'm always very grateful for the two of you. I look forward to seeing you hopefully in person, maybe June of 2022 at Monster Bash. I would love to see you there, have a couple of adult beverages, hug it out a bit and talk about some movies. I would love to come back anytime you want me. I am at your disposal. Thank you. We look forward to Absolutely. hearing all about The Mummy. Yes. Absolutely. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Well, Richard, once again, we need to do our old business here at the end of the show because we were uh, occupied with getting to the drive-in for those three fantastic movies. And wasn't that a great time? That I, I enjoyed all three of those. Absolutely. And that time period, you know, as I was thinking back, 
gosh, I, I was a young lad in 1974 and, and I wish that I had been, you know, able to go, but I, I was too young. My parents, you know, were not drive-in people as we've talked about here. You were though. So do you think you went to the drive-in in 1974? I'm sure I did, but I, I didn't see the, any of these movies then. We've got a couple new members on our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. We would like to formally welcome Simon Bousfield and Frederick Cooper. Welcome. Welcome to the club. That's one of the ways that we communicate with each other and provide feedback, provide maybe suggestions for future shows. We do also, Richard, as you know, have a line, a phone line that people can call and leave a voicemail. I wonder what the number may be. (laughs) Is 616-649-2582 or 616-649-CLUB. Thank you for that, as always. (laughs) (laughs) Running out of snarky things to say, but... I was going to say, yes, yes, go on. That's lovely, Richard. Your voice is just... Uh, comfort to my ears. I'm taking it on the road. You know, now that we're opening up again, I'm going to hit the road again, do a tour. That's all I have for old business. Do you have anything else that's hanging out there from uh, previous episodes or? I don't think so. I, I Not that I can think of. No. Um, I, I guess technically old business a little bit. Last month, I decided to watch a sub- couple of the other movies mm. that we didn't get a chance to see at the drive-in. Um, where we were last month. So I, I did uh, reviews for the blog on The Black Scorpion, The Beast with a Million Eyes. If you are so inspired, you may go uh, to uh, both of my blogs, kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com and uh, some random thoughts on those two films. And I will be doing the same again uh, this month. There's a couple of other movies that we didn't stay for. It was getting a little late. In the rest of July or early August time frame, uh, we'll uh, be taking a look at The Blood of Dracula's Castle and The House That Dripped Blood. Uh, now we did that proper for the show way back in early 2017, but I, I want to go back and revisit that movie. And this will be a first time watch with Carla because we did that movie before I met Carla. She loves Peter Cushing and, and she loves, you know, Christopher Lee's in that, isn't he? House of the Drip Blood? Yes. Yeah, I know John Pertwee is as well. So, and she likes anthology films. So I thought it'd be fun to go back and do that. And uh, I have also seen The Blood of Dracula's Castle, but it's been quite a few years. I know that that one is uh, definitely, uh, you know, a lesser film uh, compared to some of these others. So it'll be fun. Those will be on uh, the blogs again by. Uh, early August. I don't know that I'll be doing that in August because our our August triple feature is just that, a triple feature. There's not any more films. So uh, just a little something fun to uh, fill in the gaps over at the blogs. I like that. I like that. Well, let's move to new business then. And we've got quite a few video releases in the last part of July, first part of August. We start on July 20th with A Stranger is Watching from 1982. That's coming out from Shout Factory. Also the same day from Film Detective is Flight to Mars from 1951. A, uh, those Film Detective releases are really nice. They put a lot of work into those. I can't 
remember what other one I have, but uh, do you know anything about this particular release or even about the movie? I've never seen it. I'm thinking uh, you mentioned other releases that they did. They also did, was it Giant from the Unknown? Yes, um, which I didn't. So I, I have seen Flight to Mars. I was kind of debating whether or not to add this because I Film Detective does do good work. I, you know, I'm probably going to pass on the Blu-ray because I have this on a, a DVD set with Invaders from Mars and then a, a 1980s flick that I can't even recall the name of it uh, that I haven't watched. It's just kind of really odd. You got two classics and then you have this 80s movie, but there are three Mars related films. So I, I remember liking it. You know, it's early 1950s science fiction so there's a lot of stuff that you're it becomes more quaint and a little laughable because some of the technology is so far-fetched or so far out of sync with what we you know the real world is you just you know it's nostalgic i remember liking it but i i can't really recall any specifics about it i remember the dvd quality was good I can imagine that the Blu-ray would be really, would, should be really great. I've seen some of the images and it looks really good. Also on the 20th from Severin Films, and this is not particularly horror, but you know, every once in a while I run across one that just seems so interesting. I have to mention it. It's a movie from 1983 called Siege. And let me read you the synopsis of that. It's one of the most disturbing and rarely seen Canadian shockers of the 80s, inspired by the actual 42-day Halifax police strike. When a local group of right-wing vigilantes massacres the patrons of a gay bar, the sole survivor seeks refuge in a nearby apartment building whose residents must now defend themselves in a night of hate, terror, and bloodshed. Ever heard of that? No, I have not heard of that before. Severin tends to to do a deep dive. and we're, We're at that stage now, right, where we got several companies that are out there, whether you're talking Severin, or Mondo Macabro, or Kino Lorber, they're 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 doing some deep dives on some stuff, movies that we've never heard of before, which is kind of cool. We're in a collector's age right now. Mainstream is you know pulling back from physical media. It's you know the Walmart by our house. I mean they they cut their Blu-rays down to really just a couple of, of spots. It's, it is kind of sad. You go in there and it's like really there's just I remember the days of you could go to Best Buy or Sam's Club and you could spend quite a bit of time perusing all the stuff. And and now I, you know, I go to Walmart and I'm like, there's just nothing here. And actually there's just a lot of empty spots too. They don't really keep it very full. The copies they get usually are only a couple of copies. So this has become an age of these, these companies putting out this stuff. You're never going to see these in stores. Most of them are limited edition so you're you're getting them online, but from a collector perspective, it's really cool because we're getting to see see things that we've never even heard of before, and some of this stuff's pretty good, such as 1986 The Wraith with Charlie Sheen coming out on July 20th. This one is still sort of from a big label, Lionsgate. It's their Vestron Video Collectors uh, series. Never seen it. I saw. Back in the day, I remember seeing it with some. Yeah. I think it, I think it may have come out when I was in high school, or I saw it with with some high school friends or something. We mentioned Iron Eagle earlier. That and the Wraith were big on video and the VHS. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. 
Arrow Video steps in at the end of July on the 27th with another release of The Bird with the Crystal Plumage from 1970, and then the Daimajin Trilogy. Big, beautiful, nice box set for that. I have the DVD hand-me-downs, and you, was it recently, did you get another set of I had the Mill Creek Trilogy set at Monster Bash. That was one of those toss-outs. And I don't, I think Steve Sullivan may have caught it and he already had it and handed it to me if I remember correctly. So yeah, I gave you the, the bootleg copies that I have, which were decent quality uh, copies of the film. I'm sure the Arrow films, you know, Blu-ray is going to be stunning and it's a very tempting set, but I'm not getting it because I have not even seen this film series yet. I, it's like I've owned now two copies of it, and I'm like, I'll be damned if I'm going to buy a third copy, and I still haven't seen them. Uh, it's a film series that I'm dying to see, and I and I know that 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 it, you know a lot of people say that it's really good. I'm going to pass on this Arrow film set, but it is it looks great. Uh, if you haven't already, I think that's a set to get. Um, if you have it and you love the the trilogy, you might be you know tempted to go ahead and upgrade. You know what? I will probably at some point watch the the Mill Creek set, and then I'll say, "Dang it, why didn't I get that Arrow film set?" And it'll probably be like five hundred dollars at that point. I'm gonna pass because Arrow Films has got something on the horizon that piqued my interest. Their announcement this past week of oh. that uh, Shaw Brothers box set of 12 movies coming out in December. Definitely not horror related, but <laughs> so I I know that that Kung Fu movies is something that Carla, that's not her thing. And so I mentioned, you know, I was like, I walked in, hey, it's great, you know, Blu-ray announcement, you know, and I tell her and she looks at me like, really? And I said, I have to rattle off all the name of the movies, you know, I just each one, she just keeps looking at me. We get to the very last name of the movies and it's called Dirty Ho, H-O. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, she just kind of looks and shakes her head. And she says, you really don't want me to watch this with you, do you? And I said, well, you know, I said, I'd love for you to try it. But I said, I know that Kung Fu's not your stuff. So if you didn't get into Bruce Lee, I don't think you're going to get into Shaw Brothers. I'm dying to do a dive into more Shaw Brothers. And so I know our, our good friend Jonathan is a Shaw Brother aficionado. So that set is likely going to be on my birthday Christmas list. And I noted that it is a volume one. So there will be more volumes coming out. It just looks, Arrow Films is really knocking it out of the park with their sets. So it, it looks great. Yeah. And Jonathan reminded us this week that the Barnes and Noble Criterion Collection 50 yes. is off sale. And of course, by the time this, no, no, this will air in time for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he believes that Arrow Films are involved in that as well. And so there's a chance if after July 27th, this would happen to be on sale for half price that I would think about it. But otherwise, I just, yeah, I'm not familiar enough with it to want to invest. I apparently have seen the movies. I just checked IMDb and uh, Daimajin, I rated a seven. So that's, I rate most movies that I enjoy a seven. The Wrath of Daimajin, I rated a five. So I thought it was only average, but then the third one, well, actually, I don't know the order because this all says 1966, but the return of Dimogen, I rated a six. So it chances okay. are I've got that order flipped and they probably were decreasing quality. Six, five. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Whatever that's worth. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm avoiding the criterion sale. 
I'm sure that I could find something like War of the Worlds, which I, I, I didn't get that. And I really try to focus on films that I don't have in my collection as opposed to upgrading because it's like, and while I know the Blu-ray upgrades sometimes are amazing, it's like, am I happy with the DVD? How many more times in my life am I going to watch that? So unless it's a movie that I'm really like, oh, I need a Blu-ray upgrade of that. I'm trying to go with stuff that I don't have in my collection already. Not always the case, because sometimes I will will do, do the upgrade, but uh, I try to to resist the temptation, and, and a Criterion sale is always a temptation because there's always good stuff. Still on July 27th, Shout Factory releases a couple Blu-rays: The Dead Zone from 1983, one of the good 80s uh, Stephen King adaptations, if you ask me, uh, directed by David Cronenberg, I believe, and then Chamber of Horrors from 1966. Not terribly familiar with that. I have it on a DV, excuse me, DVD double feature with Brides of Fu Manchu. It was okay. I remember it being good, not great, not bad, just kind of middle of the road. Mm. In August, on August 3rd, Kino Lorber is releasing a version of Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker from 1981. I, I got the Blu-ray from some other company. I can't remember uh, and just watched it within the last few months, and I wrote about it on the blog, love, love, love that movie. August 10th is the official release date, Richard, for a movie that we, I believe, are receiving this week from Mondo Macabro, The Frenchman's Garden from 1978. Yeah, one of Paul Nashi's lesser films, I guess. It's, it's not a straightforward horror film, but it's got some suspense thriller elements to it. Adding that to my stack of, of Paul Nashi films to watch. Um, I love, I know, I've gotten to where I, I can't, I don't know, do I love Paul Nashi? I do really enjoy the Paul Nashi films. I've got to be in the right mindset. And when I am, I enjoy the movies. Uh, mostly because they're just, they're new. And it's always fun to, to experience something. Nashi is someone that took me a while to appreciate. And now that I'm appreciating it, it's kind of the perfect time because these movies are just coming out. Uh, on Blu-ray and it's great. Although I think we might be headed for a bit of a dry spell because I Mondo Macabro announced a few titles last year and this was the last of them. So they haven't announced any more Paul Nashi movies on the horizon. So I, I'm wondering if there's any more films that they've got lined up or if this this might be kind of the the end of their Nashi films, at least for a while. So it'd be interesting to see what we get. I'm still waiting for the announcement from Kino Lorber on the Santo films. They announced last year they had rights to, uh, to I think, four or five Santo movies. And they were going to release the two first two films, the proper films in the Santo film series. One of which I've seen, but I don't own. I saw it in a theater, uh, Cinema Gogo. And the second one, which I have not seen or owned, I've been holding off because they said they were going to put those out on Blu-ray in 2021. And then they had more of Santo films lined up for like 2022, but they haven't made any announcements yet. So I'm kind of hoping maybe later on in the year, we, we get some announcements from them. Looking forward to adding a few more Santo flicks to my film library. Finally, on August 10th, one of the major studios, Paramount, If you don't have this in any of the hundreds of variations that have come out, we have a Friday the 13th eight-movie collection from Paramount on Blu-ray. 
you know, just this past week, they uh, there's these films that just they keep kind of cranking them out again, you know, and, and it's like, how many times do you go to the well? They announced the, the, the Halloween films coming out on 4K from Shout Factory and the artwork on those was interesting, to say the least. I went back and relooked, and I'm like, you know, I, I probably don't hate the first film as you know the artwork on that as 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 much as my initial thought was like, is this a movie about leaves? Is this the leaf blower massacre meets my, you know, Michael Myers or the Halloween three cover is actually good. I'm, I'll take that, but the rest of it, it's just every film seems to degrade to the point to where we end with Halloween five and the night that Nicolas Cage came home. And it's odd though, the film rights, right? Because they're doing the first five films, but then they stop because they don't have the rights to the sixth film, which is very much four, five, and six definitely go together. It's just kind of frustrating that they, they just ended it right there. Paramount's doing the same thing. They announced they're putting Star Trek out on 4K uh, which I'm not, I don't have a 4K player, so that's not the big sale for me. I was like, I've got the Blu-rays, but they're doing it so weird because they're they're putting the first four films out in a box set. Star Trek, the complete four movie collection, <laughs> or the original four movie collection. That's what it was. And I'm like, okay, that hasn't been correct marketing since like 1989 or 88 because you have five and six which has the rest of, you know, that's the original crew and the artwork and at first glance, very colorful white background, but then they have Kirk and Spock wearing Kirk, Spock and McCoy are at the top of this picture. You have Kirk and Spock wearing the uniforms, the blue uniforms from Star Trek, the motion picture, but then DeForest Kelly, Dr. McCoy is wearing the red uniform for the rest of the films. And I'm like, Okay, why would you do the blue uniforms? Because most Star Trek fans recognize those as being the worst uniforms ever. They look like pajamas. And why wouldn't you have Kirk, Spock, and McCoy wearing the same color of uniform? And why are you stopping at four films? And then they announced the next day, hey, we're doing a restoration on Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's cut. So here's this wonderful 4K set of the theatrical version of Star Trek, the motion picture. But if you really want the director's cut, which has never been available on Blu-ray, hey, we're just starting the restoration of that. It'll take six to eight months. And then it's going to be a Paramount Plus exclusive. And then we'll put it out on 4K. So maybe by late 2022, you'll, you'll get the real version of the movie that everybody wants. And I'm just like, it gets frustrating sometimes. Like some of the, I just don't understand some of the choices that they, these artists are making. And it's like, do they really understand when they get some of these artists? And this is a rant, by the way, in case anyone didn't know, <laughs> they get some of these artists is like, how do they really understand the franchise? Or is these just, they just getting artists to, to do their interpretation. And it really, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the Halloween covers just are this really weird, you know, with the whole leaves appearing in all of them. And some of them, some of it's like, okay. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of frustrating. And the Star Trek one just made me scratch my head. I'm like, and supposedly then they're going to have like 
additional sets. So like apparently the next set sometime next year is going to have Star Trek five and six and then like Star Trek generations. And then they'll do like the last three films in the set. I'm like, that's the most boneheaded approach. Mm. And somebody said bad, but if they put all the movies in one big box set, then people would complain about the price. And I'm like, well, no, it makes a lot of sense. Do the six original films and then the four next generation films, two box sets and have them all together because some people may not want one or the other. I digress. I just, I've been, I've been this week when those announcements came out, I'm like, how weird is that? That's just not making a lot of sense to me. Anyway. Speaking of Star Trek and Paramount Plus, I did notice that Lower Decks is coming back at the end of the month. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yep. So. I was just having that conversation with, with my stepson yesterday because we were talking about what's coming up with Star Trek. And, and I said, well, I, you know, I thought Lower Decks was coming and then Star Trek Discovery season four is supposed to be after that. And then I think it's going to be Star Trek Picard early next year because I think they're wrapping up filming on that. And they just wrapped up filming or they're filming the last episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Mm. And Anson Mount, who plays Captain Pike, announced that they were either starting filming or, or wrapping up filming of the last episode, which would put it out possibly next spring-ish time frame. Yeah, we, we, we had a great run of Star Trek for a while, and then we'd kind of been in a little bit of a lull. So very cool. Lower Decks was a lot of fun. Yeah, and there's new uh, commercial for Discovery, but it doesn't have the date on it. Yeah, I would assume it'll come up sometime after that. All right, let's go into birthdays from the months of July and August. July 15th, 1941, Larry Cohen was born. Episode 24, we did a copy, a copy creepy, a creepy Cohen Christmas. July 29th, 1941, David Warner from The Omen. Episode 29, we did The Omen Trilogy. August 5th, 1939, Bob Clark. He directed Black Christmas. We talked about that in episode 19, Dear Margot Kidder. And coincidentally, the Amityville Horror, which Margot Kidder was in, was released on July 27th, 1979. One last birthday. Well, there are others, but the ones I'm mentioning, August 5th, 1935, John Saxon. You mentioned our Strange New Genesis of Planet Earth episode earlier. That was episode 53, which I believe you said we did in January. Yes. Anniversaries, movies released at this time in previous years. July 16th, 1958, the original The Fly. We looked at all of those movies in episode 18, Those Pesky Flies. July 19th, 1972, Dr. Fives Rises Again. Episode 30, we discussed the Dr. Fives companion and talked about the two movies. I think it's fun how we're now, as we're going through these anniversaries, it's like, we already did that in episode yes. such and such. So and yeah, that, that, promoting our back catalog, perhaps yes. getting people to watch our uh, previous episodes. Makes, makes me happy. And most of our back episodes are available. We still have a few gaps that we probably need to fix, but. Yeah, we got to work on that. July 30th, 1971, I feel like there's always some reference to either Willard or Ben uh, that gives you the heebie-jeebies, but uh, Willard, the original, came out. We talked about both of those in episode six. Oh, rap. The theme is now in my head. Thank you. 
Night of Dark Shadows came out August 4th, 1971. We've talked about Dark Shadows a few times, episodes 10 and 20. And then finally, and I believe you also mentioned this earlier, uh, Daleks Invasion Earth 2050 came out August 5th, 1966. We did that in episode 37, Doctor Who. (laughs) Richard, you spoiled the what's up with Richard part because you've already told us some things you're doing on your blog. But what else is up with you? Well, you know, it's summertime, so we're continuing our summer vacation with Harold Lloyd. Not horror related, but I know a lot of fans enjoy classic comedy as well. And I'm having a heck of a time with these. These I've seen some Harold Lloyd films, but a lot of these are first time viewings for me. And these movies are in such good condition. The music is so great with them. So this has been a lot of fun. Harold Lloyd is a, a vastly underrated silent comedian. Every, a lot of people love Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton because those movies are much more readily available. Um, even to this this day, because there's movies that are public domain. And so when there's screenings or somewhere, it's always Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. Harold Lloyd was so good. And his movies are just so much fun to watch. And I think age really well, because his character is just, he's got round glasses, almost looks a little Harry Potterish, but it's the boy next door. And a lot of them are boy meets girl and there's obstacles and then you know boy gets girl at the end of the movie there's always a feel-good thing and he's he's such a good you know actor in between and and um so i if you you know i'll say this again probably next month and, and probably september as well but if you haven't check out some harold lloyd a lot of the movies for the harold lloyd estates put for free on youtube now uh they're good print so there's no excuse. It's absolutely free. It's out there. We've been doing those. Uh, going to be playing a little bit of catch up in July. We got kind of behind. Work kind of got crazy. So uh, I'll be playing some catch up here in July as we make our way through all of the feature films up through the end of his career, which will take us to September. Uh, I'm still doing OTR Wednesdays, old time radio Wednesdays on Wednesdays. <laughs> um, and I'm doing Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd actually did an old-time radio series, 1944-1945, called the Old Gold Comedy Theater, Old Gold Bing's Old Gold Cigarettes. He was the host of a series that was kind of like the Lux Radio Theater, adaptations of comedy feature films, and most of these films are films that have been forgotten, the late late 30s up to the mid-40s. And uh, it's kind of fun. And he's, in some cases, he's got some of the original cast. Sometimes he's got new cast. And they're, they're little breezy 30-minute comedies. And he does an interesting way when he hosts. He kind of brings himself into the story a little bit because he starts a conversation with the characters and kind of asking them where they're at at the start of the, of the story. And then it transitions to them meeting a character from the rest of the story and it's like Harold Lloyd kind of like is this weird Rod Serling like esque you know, he's talking, interacting, and then it's like he almost leans back into the shadows and the story hmm. continues to unfold. It's really interesting. It's the closest to get Harold Lloyd on radio because he didn't play characters on radio. I didn't even know this existed until uh, last month. And so I was like, what am I going to do for old time radio, something comedy? And then I just discovered that Harold, Harold Lloyd did a whole se- season of shows. So we're going to do those 
on Wednesdays all the way through late September. Uh, good stuff. And, and if you love old time radio, something that you probably haven't heard of before. So worth checking out. What about you? Well, I am doing something interesting tomorrow on my blog, which would be July 12th which would be the week before this airs, I believe. But I recently took vacation and went out to California. And on a whim, sort of, I uh, visited some sets, or not sets, locations from Halloween 1978. Uh, I sent you a couple little pictures, but I got many more from other locations as well. So I'm doing a little travelogue sort of, Picture from the movie, picture of me in that same thing that'll be tomorrow. So that'll be fun. So not a movie technically on my Monday, but uh, a special event. Still doing TV movies of the 70s. I had may have mentioned last time I reached the end of 73. So rather than plunge into 74, I went back on the list. And sure enough, there are several that I could not find the first time, but I'm going back so that I can fill those in. I saw you did at House of the uh, House Hound of the Baskervilles, yes. the William Shatner version, yeah. and I have not seen that one yet. I, I've got that, so uh, I, I I haven't read your review on that yet. I'm 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 wanting to hold off and reading that until after we see the film. That'll probably be a while before we get to that one. So we're doing a lot of TV versions of Sherlock Holmes now. Yeah, so I'm interested in what of, you think. It's I'm not a f- aficionado, so I don't know really how it compares. I, I do compare it to the Hammer version because we watched that for our Sherlock. I can't imagine that it it's going to be one of the better versions of it. I've read some reviews and it, it doesn't get a lot of love from Sherlock yeah. Holmes fans. I, mean, I didn't think it was bad. Yeah, it's probably going to be serviceable, but you know, compared to some other versions, it's not going to hold up well and let's be honest when you hear the words sherlock holmes and william shatner they really probably shouldn't be in the same sentence so yes i assure people at the beginning of my review that he does not play sherlock holmes so that could be a comfort for some thank god all right well hey our exit is approaching uh and we'll be ending shortly so why don't you tell us what we're doing next month still at the drive-in where are we going my old stomping grounds One more month. Uh, We are going to travel back to 1977, and we're going to visit the Skyview Drive-In in in Oklahoma City. So, yeah, your old stomping grounds. Uh, This is a theater that, you know, unfortunately is also long gone by today's standards, but there are remnants of the Skyview still there. You can see uh, there's a church there now, and you can kind of see where the where the rows of cars were. Supposedly there's a, a speaker pole still there. So uh, a little bit of the Skyview drive-in still left in some aerial shots. A very bizarre triple feature next month. You know, we had the blood theme this month and we had giant monsters last month. We're going to go all over the board for next month. So we are going to have a little bit of Godzilla. We're going to v- watch Godzilla versus the Cosmic Monster better known by its real title, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla for 1974. Speaking of Mr. Shatner, Kingdom of the Spiders from 1977, a movie that I love, uh, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's totally, you know, out there and, and, it's, and it's Shatner, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And then uh, another movie you might not know by this title, Night of the Damned. This was the 1977 re-release title 
of Messiah of Evil from 1973, which is a movie that I'm anxious to revisit. That's a movie that uh, I, I enjoyed the heck out of the first time I saw it years ago. And it's it's a bizarre little flick, but it's uh, going to be a lot of fun. So that's our triple, our triple feature next month at the uh, Skyview Drive-In in Oklahoma City from 1977. And we can only hope that we may run into a friend next month there as well. That would be uh, odd if we ran into two and didn't run into a third. It would be odd. Yes, it would. And my one goal for that is to sell Messiah of Evil to people and have them want to see it after our show because I think it's fantastic. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, let's go out on a song by My Chemical Romance. It's called Blood. I thought that was fitting for our theme. And it's from their 2006 album, The Black Parade, which is available on Apple Music. Now, it's the happiest song I've heard about drinking blood. Well, (laughs) thanks, everyone, for listening and for watching. Uh, We didn't mention the the YouTube channel and all of that, but uh, it's late. So it's out there. And and yeah, if you watch, if you read our respective posts, we will always throw out links to the YouTube channel where you can see our video companion, which is always fun and different than what you find here. One complements the other. Exactly. Thanks for listening, watching all of that. Everyone have a good night. See you next time. Take care, everyone. Well, they encourage your complete cooperation. Send your roses when they think you need to smile I can't control myself because I don't know how And they love me for it, honestly I'll be here for a while So give them blood, blood, gallons of the stuff Give them all that they can drink and it will never be enough So give them blood, blood, blood Grab a glass because there's going to be a flood, blood